Hey everybody, my name is Patrick, and along with my co-host Kelvin, you're listening to another episode of The Tech Huddle. Today we're joined by James Gorsey, founder of Caden, an ethical technology studio. This is a really great chat about a range of topics, including AI alignment research, running social enterprises, tips on managing successful cultures, his time at PPQ, and a whole lot more. We had a lot of fun talking to James, and we turned it into a long episode for you. I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. I was going to start with something like, you know, this is James. We worked together at Hydric back in the day, 2016 to 2018. Uh, since then, he has successfully led the, the digital product team at PPQ and has now started his own agency, Cadent. And today we're here to talk about yeah. James's journey, why Cadent, why an agency and everything in between. Agency is a swear word in my vernacular. Well, see, this is good. This is why you're yeah. here. So okay. agencies are gross. The agencies are gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, uh, it, it's got a connotation associated with it. And I think a it neg- comes... A really negative connotation I, th- now I think it comes out of... Um, and I have a lot of friends who work in the ad industry, and this is not a knock on them as individuals, but, uh, <laughs> I mean... Okay. My friends in the ad industry are the first to throw stones at their own industry. There is a yeah. negative connotation associated with agency as a word, largely, I think, because of the the ad agency industry um, and right. uh, and digital agencies that came, quote unquote, that came up through like the nineties and the early early noughts. I don't know what do we call them now? The early zeros that that kind of time, two thousand. Yep. 2000 to 2009, um, yeah, there was a little bit of snake oil salesmanship that uh, was associated with those kinds of organisations. And even to this day, you know, SEO agency, you kind of go, oh, I don't know, what are we going to get here? Um, Yeah, that scares me. Yeah, and so when uh, when we were putting our brand together, agency was a word that we deliberately ran away from and – uh, we started calling ourselves a consultancy, um, kind of reflecting the fact that, you know, we, we like to work with organizations at a strategic level to understand what their objectives are so that we can bring our full skills to bear, um, delivering on that uh, strategy, um, whether that's right. by, uh, you know, helping them refine their processes before they're automated or whether that's uh, bringing an entirely different method of service delivery or product delivery to the table using technology. Um, just uh, being able to partner at that stage yields the best results in my experience. But um, I like consultancy and I think it does better represent what you guys do because an agency you typically expect, it's like, very product focused, like very you know, individual project focused, like as in, mm. you know, go in and deliver me this. Mm. Whereas you do definitely get in and, you know, you won't sell a piece of custom software if that's not the right thing to do. Right? Mm. You'll actually help at the at the, the process level and the planning level. And mm. so. And, and then yes. what happened was all of the consultancies that work with the government have been shown to be complete charlatans and selling uh, kind of information, <laughs> tax dodging yeah. information to different large conglomerates, writing the rules for big tech companies to then walk their way around, you know. So now consultancy is a swear word as well. So we're calling ourselves an ethical technology studio uh, at, this, <laughs> uh, okay, at this stage, right. um, which I think is is a good, a good uh, kind of 
uh, synonym uh, for the thing that we do without changing its meaning. Um, yeah. But what is that um, for the people who don't know? Because there are some non-technical people who listen to the podcast. Why is agency a dirty word? Why do people have bad experiences with agencies? What's the, what's the perception amongst tech? Uh, I think there has been a, in the past, there's been a conflation of terms that have been mm. used to describe certain companies. Um, so, for example, when, uh, you know, a, a while back I was looking at buying a company, for example, and they, they build themselves as a digital agency. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I'm interested to learn more. I've spent some time in professional services in software and technology and, and marketing technology and digital marketing. And, you know, uh, I've got a bit of a varied background in that respect. But, um, but you know, we, we get the info pack and we look through the info pack and I'm like, this is an ad agency. This, this isn't a digital marketing agency. This isn't a digital agency. They outsource their WordPress development and their SEO and their pay-per-click stuff, what do they do? They do mostly graphic design and brand work. That to me right. is a, 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 an advertising slash marketing slash brand agency, depending on the, the particular emphasis uh, that uh, that organization has on uh, in each area. So I think there are a lot of agencies, like traditional agencies, professional services organizations um, that, are looking down the barrel of extinction if they don't get with the times. And so they've just started using some of the buzzwords to perpetuate their businesses. And mm. I think that leads to a certain le- level of expectation from people, which may or may not be delivered upon. And when they don't deliver upon that level of expectation, um, then that tars everybody with that label with a, a similar brush uh, inadvertently. So, um, yeah. So you've only got to have the experience with two separate uh, organizations that fall under the same kind of name. So, like, if you, you as a company, you contract two different agencies mm. consecutively and you have a bad experience with both because of not delivering upon what was promised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, that taints the brush because you just immediately... Yeah. I see it all the time. So at a place that I've contracted, uh, we don't use agencies anymore. Very smooth. Yeah, yeah. No one will ever know, Kelvin. (laughs) In the past. But I've seen that. As in organizations will shy away from using agencies for for everything because of a couple of bad experiences in a row. Again, mm. like a lot of like a lot of promises and not a lot of living up to those promises. Mm. And they're a very high price tag. I think as well. There's a, a dimension here which is, you know, respecting technology work and software development as an engineering discipline, which it is. And um, I don't think that oh, – so I think that there are some professional services organizations that do kind of try to bridge that uh, logical divide with their customers by calling themselves you know, software engineers or, or engineering firms or, or what have you. Um, but – yeah, I, I think, that, you know, you wouldn't find a, a civil engineering consultancy calling themselves an agency. So why would a, why would a tech company? Um, so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a kind of a, a funny labeling quirk. Uh, so 
okay, so let's take a, let's take a step. Yeah, back. we we kind of went into it yeah, without we even doing let's any segue intros. Let's back a little bit. <laughs> we, we kind of we kind of got an intro, and we might stitch one together. Uh, sorry for the editing, Pat. Pat does all yeah, the editing. Okay. I flat yeah. out said at the beginning, I don't have time to do editing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he tell me, he's like, Patrick, I don't have time to record all these podcasts every week. I'm just like, you're telling me, buddy, I've got to edit them every week. <laughs> <laughs> it takes like four hours listening to my own voice. It's horrible. Never uh, a good time. So I did want to, I and like, I, I've been around since the beginning of Cadent. And mm. like, we've been working, we've been doing like little jobs, maybe one a year, right? Since mm. we left Hydric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've picked up about one kind of... Job, project, something odd, odd per job, year. Be a money yeah, odd job. job here and there yeah. since then. And then Cadence seemed to have grown out of that. You just seem mm. to have contacts that want to have get stuff done. And, mm. and then you've grown your business around that. Mm. So I thought for those of you who don't know you and haven't been there since the beginning, the two big questions I wanted to do was like, how, yeah, how did Cadence come about mm. and why a studio? Uh, like, yeah, <laughs> and, and so like we talk to a lot of like Pat and I ourselves are into like SaaS style products, and that's what we're mm. trying to build ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a bit of a buzz at the moment, which you know we've jumped on jumped on that bandwagon. So the studio isn't in vogue right now. Is that the, is that the right word? Anyway, yeah, yeah, um, I, I see what you mean. And so yeah, I just thought that would be a nice follow-on to that. So like, why Caden and and yeah, like why a studio in an age of SaaS businesses? Mm. And how do you end up there? I'd like to hear the whole journey of how you ended up starting your own studio and yeah, the entire journey into that. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, uh, we can go right back to the almost the very beginning. Um, and you know, when my my graduate job was uh, oddly enough in a human resources kind of personnel. Uh, company and um, uh, I graduated with a psychology degree and I'd always been interested in science and technology and, and consumer tech and, and so on and uh, you know my uni job was at Meyer in the, the computer section and selling digital cameras and all that kind of thing so I've always been inclined and had a really strong interest in the way things work and and technology always scratched that itch for me um, and then, uh, you know, in that graduate position, realized really quickly that I didn't want to be a, a kind of a labor hire manager. And, and so set about um, making a nuisance of myself, I think uh, some involved would say, uh, taking a look at the systems that we were using and, and the, the website and our presence on social media and where we were investing in those areas and um, and was given enough license to go ahead and and manage social media and this was back in 2011 so management of social media wasn't really a job that was going around at that time it it was kind of relatively new as a discipline if you could call it that and when a lot of the those SaaS products started becoming a thing right like it was a Hootsuite and yeah Hootsuite and Buffer mm. were just were just coming up around that time and um and I was using those you know prolifically and uh and I was given enough uh enough rope to go ahead and invest in LinkedIn um, and the LinkedIn recruiter product, which hadn't been used in that industry at that time. And, 
fast forward three months, we'd already made 150% ROI in our investment there. And so that bought me even for, nice. further license uh, to then go ahead and start talking about the website and what can we do there and, and manage that as a project. Um, and so I worked at that company for two and a half years and, and it got acquired and um, uh, the culture kind of wasn't doing it for me anymore. And so it was time to move on. And so I moved down to Sydney um, and got some work uh, with a startup digital marketing agency, um, which was doing a lot of uh, really targeted uh, reputation management and social media marketing um, for and SEO um, for small and medium businesses. Um, so I was doing sales and strategy for them uh, somewhat successfully. And uh, then after that time, moved into programmatic media, which is uh, an entire landscape of exchanges and so on that uh, pretty much every pay-per-click or pay-per-impression marketing uh, goes through. Um, even the stuff that you buy direct from a brand these days is often intermediated by some kind of serving solution, which right. is driven yeah. by the same technologies to manage yield and, and manage the amount of money that you're going to make out of any placement. So, um, so you did that for a short amount of time at another startup and, and then had to move back to Brisbane for family reasons. And so I uh, got some work at a, what did they call themselves at that time? I think they called themselves like a software house, I suppose. Um, oh, that's like, an old term. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, that classic kind of .NET software shop um, here in, mm -hmm. in Brisbane. And um, I was lucky enough to be apprenticed by a handful of people who um, who really knew the game really well and, and who had integrity in absolute buckets. Um, and so... Uh, they took me under their wing and, and kind of taught me the taught me the ropes um, of managing software projects and um, managing clients uh, from an account client perspective. Um, and then, then after that, I worked at Hydric, which is yeah. where I met Kelvin. Um, and so I spent. What year was that? That was twenty sixteen. Was yeah. twenty sixteen? Yeah, Did sixteen start... to eighteen. So we had Lachlan as a guest mm -hmm. uh, on the last episode we recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, was that around the same? You started before Lachlan. Right? Yeah, just before. So just before, um, yeah. so me and, and Lachlan and Rachel were all brought on board around the same time. And oh, right. okay. it's kind of a, a increasing in capacity of the organization. Um, and so it was around that time that the that Hydric kind of went from six people to maybe 10 people um, mm. all up and that was a pretty significant bump um, and that coincided with a range of pretty large projects which we we got in and we closed out in record time for the organization and um, uh, Kelvin and I in the trenches so to speak for for months on end with some some clients uh, based in new york and getting up uh you know 7 8 a.m in the morning to have the 5 6 p.m call with uh with new york and <laughs> um so so yeah it was it was a really cool experience to to work with um big tech companies like spotify and fortune 100 companies like emirates and northwestern mutual and and that kind of thing just building 
products, building tech yeah. products. Um, some big, some small, uh, some you'd probably more call experiences than, than products, but we always kind of had that product mindset about going about doing our work and, uh, and we're always focused on value. Um, and that's, that's why they always contracted. They would, they would come to Hydric because internally they couldn't get it done quick enough. Hmm. And so they knew that they would come to us and we would deliver it. We would give them good estimates and deliver on those timeframes. Yeah. And a huge credit to Owen and Dave, the, the founders of that company who, um, who developed a, an incredible culture and an incredible group of people in that, uh, in that company that uh, I hope Cadent one day hopes to shine a light to. Um, and so I, so I learned a lot there about working with teams of people and, and, and maintaining culture um, and being a custodian of culture um, within an organization and making sure that everybody can get what they need and, and be unblocked on uh, any of their work at the same time as uh, everybody feeling positive about coming to work, not just like mm. they're being raked over the coals daily just to, to deliver. Um, so, yeah, that was a really positive experience for me. And I can attest to that because... Like we, I really enjoyed working at Hydric and like the quality of the projects, especially when you came on board, the like stop Owen it, Kelvin. And Just stop Dave it. were doing, <laughs> well, I, you know, there, there's a follow-up to that. <laughs> Owen and Dave were definitely more on the business development and pretty light on, on the, the project management and processes. And so as we were starting to get more projects, there was more left to the developers to kind of get yourself organized and. Estimating is hard. Estimating, yeah, estimating is so hard. Uh, so yeah, so when when you came on, it was great because then they, you were actually dedicated to managing the processes and the projects, and it did it made it made a huge difference to you know like again that's how we, we still do a lot of estimating together, and I think we've actually come to a really good like my estimates are still off, but I, my, co- my confidence ratings seem to give you enough to go on most of the time. <laughs> so somehow you take my like waffly large numbers with estimate ratings and turn them into pretty decent estimates. Yeah. Look at what I've seen in the times we've worked together. It's been, it's, I mean, that kind of speaks a little bit to the professional services side of the work because in a traditional professional services model, you're selling your time. And if you don't have a way to effectively quantify your time, then you cannot effectively manage the profitability of your business or the success of your projects or the satisfaction of your clients. And so if you can't do that within a bound of error, then it's really difficult to like, nobody's having a good time, but basically everybody's yeah, yeah. having a bad time. Yeah. But like what, what I love about that was like, there was even times though, and this is what I loved about the culture. Like I did some things to annoy you. I remember, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I made a call and it might not have been the right call. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll put my hand up there. I'm I don't even call. remember this, Kelvin. No, so but, yeah. don't you? I remember just, I can tell you were annoyed at me. And I'm like, all right, tell me what I've done. Let's get it sorted. And then, you know, we got down and we, like, we had it out. And, I, you know, I put my point forward. You told me why I pissed you off. And then, like, problem solved and we went on with our lives. But like yeah. that's something. He pisses me off too, James. Don't worry. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. All we, the time. We come to blows. Yeah, Pat and I come to blows regularly. But I like I like that. I like being. I would much prefer, and I think that's an important part of culture. Knowing like a company culture, because mm. if you sit on something and resent it, it's like you know nobody's happy, and you're just sitting mm. there and you resent your work, and the quality of the work uh, declines. Whereas if you can sit down with somebody and know 
that you can just have it out and find out what the problem is and then move on. Mm. Uh, that's, that makes the difference, right? Like that takes an uncomfortable environment and turns it back into a, a really functional working environment really quickly. If there's something that I've learned, especially in the last five or so years, uh, as, as you kind of mature as a, what, what I effectively became, uh, which is a middle manager, let's, let's face it, you, you learn that it's rare that anybody does anything with malintent um, or with, you know, to, to spite somebody. Um, and so, and of course, perverse incentives abound and you can always kind of find some way to make it serve that person or the who they represent or whatever. But rarely is it as overt as I'm, I'm making this decision to, to piss James off. Like this yeah. is why I made this decision. <laughs> it, it's... Uh, it's the decision that seemed like the right one at the time with the tools he had available. And um, one of my catch cries these days, uh, you know, mistakes are, should be expected um, in all circumstances, uh, but we shouldn't judge people by the presence of mistakes. We should judge by the response uh, yeah, how to well mistakes or, or the, yeah. the response to challenging situations of any kind. Um, because how you handle it is is far more important than the presence of the problem. Yeah, so so that was Hydric uh, mm. and going back. And what, what I love is uh, I'm going to try and get like just about everybody from Hydric on this podcast at some point because everybody, <laughs> just about everybody at Hydric like, and Owen and Dave, I think did a great job of like hiring people mm. because just the qual- like the the quality of people that they managed to come across and i think that also reflected in the quality of the projects and clients that they have as well like yeah they did a really good job there hmm. um so yeah so that's coming towards that, that's the end of hydric and so i remember i had been i was on loan to another company and mm-hmm. in colombia mm-hmm. on loan to another company and then suddenly I come back and you were gone. And this was early 2018. <laughs> I abandoned like, you. I think you messaged me while I'm in Columbia. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm gone. I'm like, sorry, what? What? <laughs> yeah, I, um, it, it, I think I'd reached the limit of the things that I could achieve at, at Hydric. It was a, a small company and, and I, I was hungry for a different kind of challenge, um, having set up the, like you say, the project management or delivery management processes there and introducing the organization, the concept of agility and, uh, you know, hooking up all of the technology that powered that, those processes and, and those ways of working. Um, uh, yeah, like I, I felt like I'd, I'd reached the kind of logical conclusion of what I brought there. Um, mm. And I am notorious for having itchy feet in the first place, you know, Um uh, so if I if I've reached if I've achieved things and I've stopped achieving things, I, I probably will feel the compulsion to to move on. That it's time. I um, to that. Yes, uh, which is <laughs> why we're in professional services, Kelvin. Um, <laughs> but um, which uh, you know alludes a little bit to the the next section. But um, but yeah, it's been. Uh, it, it was good because I, I got then to go and work for probably a nine to twelve month period with a, a ASX listed financial technology company, and um, that was uh, that was a really interesting time. I learned a lot there. Um, worked with some pretty big brands again, um, uh, but 
yeah, finance industry is quite dry and um, uh, that organization was going through some challenges as well that, that I couldn't affect change in. Um, and mm. so that became a little bit of a frustration. And, and so it was time to, to kind of move on. Um, and so for the next three years, I worked at uh, an organization called PPQ or Personalized Plates Queensland. And for those people out there who don't know what PPQ is or think that Personalized Plates Queensland might be some of those decorative plates you see at your grandmother's place on the shelf, um, it, it's not that. It's, uh, it's the uh, vanity plates on cars, registration plates on cars where you get to put your choice of letters and numbers on, on the, the, the plate. Um, and in Queensland, you pay a fee for that. Um, and in Queensland, it is very popular. Uh, Queensland in uh, in Australia is one of the was one of the kind of frontier uh, personalized plates regions around the world, yeah. <laughs> if you if you would believe it. Um, we were wow. we were we were how many did we get out on the road? While I was there, we went past the million plates issued mark. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and. And is this is over... in a state of five million people, so yeah. um, you know that's pretty. That's not it's insignificant. Buying multiples. Well, yeah. They're, so they're, it's a fascinating product because people are really people are collectors of plates. Mm. Um, people buy plates as gifts for friends and yeah. family, and and twenty firsts and eighteenths and Father's Day, and um, and it's something that theoretically lasts forever. I mean, what, what you're buying is a license from the government to have that in perpetuity until such a time as the government decides that you're not allowed to have it anymore, which would be, let's face it, pretty politically unpalatable. So, you know, take, <laughs> take that how you will. But, um, but it, yeah, there, there is a huge secondary market for plates as well, mm. um, which is like PPQ, the main squatting almost. People just yeah, buy it, yeah. yeah, that is the analogy that I drew constantly in the organization to kind of help because PPQ being one of the first uh, jurisdictions that made a lot of money out of this. um, I think it's fair to say had a bit of a mindset about the way that it should work. And, uh, and here I am sitting in the corner of technology going, I think we can do this better, you know. Um, mm. I, I don't think we need to rest on our laurels here. I think we can give better service to our customers. I think we can, uh, you know, offer products in, in more effective ways that are more suited to individual individuals. Um, I think we can gather data in a way that will uh, allow us to help them be creative with with their product choices and help them understand what the possibilities are in their budget range or or within the the domain area that they're they're thinking about theming their plate with and so so yeah the, the domains 100% it's it's almost one to one you're buying ip you're buying the idea yeah. of something and uh, in queensland yeah you can restyle your plate you own the letters and numbers you own quote unquote the letters and numbers um but you can reuse them and reuse them and sell them and put them on different cars over the, over the years, you, yeah. you don't have it's not BMW stuck. one, BMW two, you know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Brisbane BMW has made a lot of money out of plates. Let me tell you that. That's for sure. Oh, nobody wants the ugly state ones geez. on their new BMW, right? They need the <laughs> nice black plate. Yeah, was- I just got to say, like side 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 note, I've always mm. said I will never get one, 
I'll never get one. I like being anonymous on the road. Mm-hmm. I want a white car mm-hmm. and a state issue license plate so nobody knows who I am when I piss them off or cut them off. Yeah, you know, because like you see them on your morning commute and you're just like, oh, it's you again. It's you again. It's you again. Like I know exactly who you are. And side note, people often just get their initials and then their date of like their year of birth or their name and then their year of birth. I'm just like, you just gave me half of what I need to get into your bank account. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you advertising your identity on your car? Well, you should get something like, you know, race driver 88 or something like that. Not like, you know, Janet T95. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Too much info. And Pat, in the, in the focus groups, uh, you, you would have been referred to as what's called a rejector. Uh, of plates, uh, people who people who PPQ never really marketed to because they knew that they were going to be wasting their money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I want. I, at one stage, I did want one because I was just like, I don't want this ugly. I was, I was that guy. I don't want this ugly state plate. It was just so freaking hard to actually like go on the website and then say, I want this combination. And be like, oh, it's invalid. Please refer to the rules, and it would like pop up in some like separate dialogue. I'm like, I don't know. I can't fill this thing out. Or it's like, it's too many letters. I'm like, well, why didn't you restrict me when I was typing in the letters? Yeah. You know, it was just a, it was, at the time that I was using it. Hmm. Um, it was a really bad um, technical experience. I know. Uh, and uh, I know all of the people who were responsible for those experiences <laughs> over the years, Pat. And um, <laughs> Give me their names. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think what um, it's, it's easy to underestimate the complexity of the product. And hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you could use the analogy of technical debt here because mm. it's a, an accrual of decisions over the years that have been orientated towards getting the most yield for inventory, right? Mm. And so uh, over the years, of course, that has led to, you know, finding little pockets of product and, and uh, espousing the value and pricing it in the right way to the extent that somebody or a certain group of people will be interested in buying it. And when you make that kind of product decision constantly in the same way that you might with product uh, with uh, with software products, if you're, you're mm. always making the same kind of decision, you're going to be really deficient in other areas. And, and what that actually led to was quite a confusing user experience for a lot of years on, on the, the PPQ website. And that mm. that's actually the... That was actually the, the, the work that I enjoyed the most was unpicking that problem and, and understanding it more. Um, and, uh, and that led to some of the, the best improvements that we made to the, the PPQ website, um, uh, including making it more accessible, which, you know, one of, the, one of the tenets of which is making it understandable. If I can't understand this, then it's yeah. not accessible. Um, yeah. and, and that helps everyone as well. Um, and we, we haven't gotten into the, the kind of ethical work yet, but this is one of the key or core experiences for me in accessibility where I could see the full value of an accessible and inclusive software solution. It wasn't just going to make it better for people who have a visual impairment or a cognitive impairment or, or uh, deficiency. Um, it will make it better for everyone. Um, it'll make it clearer. It'll make it understandable. It'll make it so that, um, like, the business case is clear. Uh, and, and it's not just for the 20% of people in Queensland who do live with a disability. It's also 20%. for... 20%? Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's for the 80% of people who also just want to buy a plate 
you know, <laughs> yeah. because as, as your experience was, Pat, it can be really difficult. So making it clear mm. was, uh, was a really cool exercise and a, and a fun problem to solve. Yeah. Well, one thing that really I, I come across in more recent years, uh, and especially at Eggie, because uh, Eggie was, you know, non-technical founders and then targeting non-technical people. And it's so easy to to realize how oh, it's, it's so easy to make things for technical people, which is such a small portion of the market, especially when you're targeting 30 plus or 40 plus that aren't like digital natives necessarily. And so I, I think you're right, even just making it accessible so that it's easy to use for the regular person. And large tech companies have completely forgotten this until recently. Mm. Forgotten? I, I don't know. Ignored. I, I probably ignored. probably <laughs> more appropriate. Like it's forgotten. I feel like you've got this San Francisco tech bubble. And so mm. let's say that in San Francisco, 80% of the population is technical. I'm just making, making shit up here. But let's just, just say, or even this, the circles that you're in. So you live in the San Francisco tech center. 100% of the people from people. San Francisco live in San Francisco. So, <laughs> And that might, might seem a glib thing to say, but like think about the socioeconomic demographic of San Francisco yes. in 2023. It's, it's, it's the, one of the richest uh, economic regions in the entire world. Um, there, there's, uh, there's a certain mindset that comes along with that. There's a certain amount of wealth that comes along with that regardless of your background if you've owned a, an apartment or a house long enough in san francisco you probably got a ton of equity now you, you're going to be set probably for the rest of your life you know that there's there are a lot of connotations um that, that go along with that i agree but it's, it's the echo chamber it's like everybody you talk to knows mm. the same stuff as you and therefore mm -hmm. you just forget that there's all of these other people and that's why i think it's not like i don't think it's deliberate i think it's just they, you know, you you live in your echo chamber, you and all the social media algorithms algorithms just feed you back the same stuff that mm. you you know it's the workout that you know, and so therefore you just forget that there's all these other. I was just blown away by, uh, like we did some customer interviews. Oh well, I got to sit in on some customer interviews, and people just saying, "Oh no, I didn't press that button because I I didn't know what it did, and I was afraid to touch it," mm. or mm -hmm. I didn't know it was a button. It was just text. Or, mm. you know, I didn't know it was a button because it's just an icon and I have no idea what that icon means. And so, and that, all of that stuff is, is huge for accessibility as well. Because if you've just got yeah. icons and especially if you're in the startup of move fast and break things, you're probably not putting alternates for screen readers in there, like the alt text for mm. screen readers, which is going to help somebody. So if you've got no text and no alt text and no tooltip and, and people like, again, my parents, they won't touch it because they'll be afraid they'll break something. Yeah. And so I completely can resonate with that. But it was a big surprise for me because I was in that bubble. I lived in yeah. this bubble of surely everybody knows how to do this. I actually want to throw in a random question here and we'll get we'll continue on, but I just this it's just occurred to me and I would I I love this question. So for you, and like accessibility is a big part of what you do. Uh and it was a big part of what you did at, at Personalized Plates. Now for a, an indie hacker or a bootstrapper or somebody who has limited resources uh, and they're just trying to get a product to market, do you think that, like, is it okay to get to market quickly without accessibility or do you feel like you, you should always have accessibility and you shouldn't ship without it? My personal stance is that you shouldn't ship without it. 
And the, the reason why that's my personal stance is because I know enough to know that you can stand on the shoulders of giants of this stuff. If you're using Material UI, you don't need much else to deliver an accessible solution that's up to level A or even level AA standard by, by WCAG 2.1 standards. Um, clarification if you're no using idea. it properly. <laughs> like, where can you think? I still don't even know what the, th- like the standards you just said are. And that's how little and, accessibility I've done in my however many years of career. And it's, it's fascinating because this, there are specialists in this area. They, they do exist. They are out there. But um, they're in pockets mm. and they're, they're not really, uh, they're not mainstream they're not mainstream people necessarily. Mm-hmm. The the and it's where the overlap of there's an overlap between the humanities and the sciences that doesn't always happen, um, or humanities and technology that doesn't always happen. And it's actually the the exception rather than the rule. I think, and I think that's part of what the technology and software industry is grappling with at the moment with the ethics of AI, it's because technologists for so many decades have just not even really needed to, needed to, quote unquote, uh, think about those kinds of things. But now we're on the cusp of this exponential change and the exponential impact of technology on societies and on humanity to the extent that Governments are going, well, there are some pretty dicey ethical issues going on here. If you're going to have this much power centralized in your company to affect the way that people are living their lives and the advice that's being given to them or um, or you're giving people the power to potentially infringe copyright based on the current state of, of laws in, in modern, <laughs> modern rules-based democracies, for example... Um, you know that all of that is is an unanswered question at this stage i think i don't think that's a controversial thing to say um and so when it you know bring bring that back to what is is kind of a a pretty simple question should i as a an indie developer care about accessibility we can use some of the logic that they're using at that level down at this level where it's like okay, well, what are my values? What do I value as an individual, as a human? Do I value other people? Would I, uh, would I help someone out who I didn't know? Um, hmm. Do I care about my customers? Because if, if my customers are, oh, yeah, my customers can be anyone. Well, in Australia, there's that magical 20% figure. 20% of people in Australia are living with a disability. So hmm. do you care about them? Um, and yeah, is there and is I, their money just as good as as anyone else's? And and so it's yeah, it, it's a challenge. And it's not a black and white question either. And so I think that's a that's a good answer. Like one of the things that I've always had in my mind, and especially annoys me when like Google posts something on Twitter and or like a Google employee will be like, oh, you can't ship your app without you know this minimum level of accessibility. Uh, like you just you just can't. And although I understand the benefit of it, what I, what I struggle with is if you have limited time and limited resources and you're just trying to get a product out and get it validated, uh, is it better to not ship it because you didn't get accessibility in or ship it, validate, 
And then, you know, once you've worked out this is an idea that is actually worth pursuing, then go and spend the 10, 20, 30% extra time to go and add the accessibility into it. And obviously that depends on the product because if your target market has a high percentage of people that would fall into that accessibility category, well, then you'd be stupid not to do it because you're not going to be able to validate your product correctly without accessibility. But yeah, and that's the thing. I, I think always- what you're asking is a design question. And uh, the there is an analogy that I like to draw with concepts like secure by design. What does secure by design mean? That means yes. we don't make any decisions up front that would compromise the security of the solution, right? Yep. Why should we? Why shouldn't we also be accessible or inclusive by design? And why shouldn't we be choosing the technologies that make it easy for us to make the accessible decision that reduces our costs associated with becoming accessible? And and that's a lot that's of what we do. A lot of the work that we do internally is to build our collection of tools and techniques to mm. lower the overall cost. Because we, because we're making that proactive decision to say every one of our solutions is going to be accessible, at least to level AA, by ex- but uh, at least to level A, but uh, that's the exception. We're, we're going to gun for AA as a minimum on every project, and the only way that you can do that in a way that doesn't scare potential customers off is by getting really good and efficient at it, you know, and and considering it at each stage of the design process and at each stage, at each iteration yeah. and, and, and having that all baked into your way of working and, and your definitions are done. So, um, so I don't agree that it has to cost 20 or 30%. I, it, I think it does require a little bit of experience and a little bit of education, a little bit of nous to go and pick the right tools that make that job easier for you. Yeah. And it takes a little bit of care to go and educate yourself on <laughs> it takes a little bit of care to turn on the screen reader and work out how how easy it is to navigate around your site let's just put it that way and i think what i take from that and you've changed my mind on this a little bit and because i've always been very gung ho just get it out get it shipped validate it and then you know work out if it's a value to your product to go and add in the additional and it's not for a lack of care it's more like if the product is it was if there's a dichotomy, right? It's like either your product exists without accessibility, or it doesn't exist. Well, I think it's better that it exists without accessibility, as long as it's a long-term goal for you to then expand it, expand from there. But I think from what I've taken from you there is it's not as hard as you think, and you shouldn't just write it off. Mm, so actually, you know, and if you're shipping a lot of products, you'll get better at it over time. It's it's like writing. You can write garbage code and sure that'll get used to a certain level quickly or you can practice a lot and write good enough code that you know and you can get good at writing code that is that is in the middle right like it's it might be a little bit dirty but you can fix it in the future and so you find that line and so there's probably a line like a minimum level of accessibility you can do that isn't going to take the earth and if you do it regularly you'll get good at it and so it's not actually an overhead or a burden. You'll just do it and it'll be second nature and it probably won't add a whole lot to your development cycle. 100%. Uh, and these are actually really good things to think about as well. It just helps you think logically. Like I've always said that I think that 
my my opinion is that the Discord app has very good accessibility. They took a very big focus on this recently. They hired a bunch of staff just to work on accessibility. They were publishing what they do about it. But even just like if you do things like tab focusing, it'll like focus into different parts of the app and then let you move into different ones. So they're using ARIA roles and things like that. It helps you think as a developer and as a designer and even just as like a UX person, what are these different sections of my apps? What do they logically do? How do I get into them, right? It's, it's less of just like UI fudge that you're putting together on the fly and more like just building blocks. Here's my sidebar. Here's my chat window. Here's what a message looks like. Here's the bottom. As we've been growing uh, in, in our team and, you know, some of the people joining the team haven't had a lot of exposure to accessibility, but uh, when they receive a design, they go, ah, oh, this this all makes a lot of sense. And then they go mm-hmm. and do the, the accessibility course that we, we send them off on and, and then they come back and they go, this is making me a better developer yeah. because I, mm. I I have to think in a structured way about how I'm putting all of this content on a page, and that that it kind of forces you into this stance of okay, well, how do I if I'm playing within these rules, how can I make it as usable as I possibly can? How can I build it efficiently? Um, and as you know, coming from a long time ago, a, a creative background constraints breed creativity if you've got mm-hmm. a, a a constraint you're going to work just that little bit harder to get what you need out of that situation because of the challenge of that and that's yeah. that's exciting and that's that's what kind of i find uh helps you become a better craftsperson in in software or, or in, in life generally is when you have those little constraints and, and you give this give yourself those challenges and it just so happens that in this circumstance you're just making it better for everybody you're having yeah. having a positive impact on the world which has to be a good thing right and guess what you're doing the morally right thing as well which kind of helps mm-hmm. I've always said it's kind of like um, switching from JavaScript to TypeScript. There's so much resistance to it. But once you actually do it, you're like, oh, okay, this is actually better. Yeah, oh, I get it now. <laughs> TypeScript. Are you saying that TypeScript is the morally right thing to do? I think that's what he's saying. I'm just saying that you feel better once you've got types in your project. I'll tell you when you break something. Uh, but yeah, I, and you, I'm going to pull my head out of the sand and make more of an effort on this in the future. Uh, so I'm glad. Th- I, I appreciate having my mind changed, but I will come back to you. I will try it and see if I can get good at it and see how much development time it adds to my products. And I will report back. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, th- it should be inversely proportional to uh, to how good you're getting at it. So that's good. That's true, yeah. And so mm. you can't just give it one try and then write it off. You've got to actually right. do it and give it a consistent effort and time. get better over yeah. time. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Your first, your first thing will be terrible, but then when you go back, you're like, oh, I kind of understand it now. And having a look how other people do it too is also very interesting. But let's go back because we we're just talking about PPQ, mm. and then we got down a rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, it's it's all related, right? It's it's all tied in together. <laughs> and so, and yeah. that question, I like that question. It's and something been on my mind, and I haven't had a chance to talk to even to you about it. And like, I know you're accessibility focused, and so I was just like, all right, let's just get that question now while we're while we're on the topic. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, when PPQ, you know, kind of came to an end, we uh, participated in the successful tender because it's a government contract that's issued to organisations. Um, uh, it's only been issued to two you know, throughout history so far, um, and so the organisation I was working for um, was an ad agency um, who spun up a business specifically to service that government contract, and um, and so we put in another another tender and uh, we were successful in, in winning that tender. I wrote about 50 pages of that 
hundred odd page uh, tender document. Um, so I was pretty proud of that. Uh, we, we went through kind of presentations and uh, we had to answer questions and, and things like that. So, you know, that, it was a challenging process, but it was a big win. And, um, and so my time was, was at an end there. And um, I was looking around a little bit for the next opportunity and um, I got offered an opportunity to work uh, three days a week for a federal government contract um, uh, on a uh, on a program called the Palm Scheme, or at, at the time it's called um, the Pacific Labor Scheme. But um, essentially, they asked if I was available, um, and can you only work three days a week because you know that's that's where our budget will stretch for this twelve month period. And I said, well, sure, but can I do other stuff as well? And they said, yeah, of course, we wouldn't you know, we wouldn't stop you from working another, you know, couple of days a week in your week. Um, that's no problem at all. And uh, at that time, I, I had been talking to uh, the people at Calac for, at that point, maybe a year, a year and a half, um, the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Cultural Centre. And um, I'd been helping them through a, a grant uh, process to to get some funding for their app from the Western Australian Government. Um I didn't realize uh, you were involved as the, at the grant stage. Yeah, it was just on the side while I was working at PPQ. Um, I, I had a friend in WA who uh, has been a, a mate of mine for a number of years and he was like, hey, can you take a look at this for me? And we just had a few conversations and um, and so uh, put together kind of a... Would have put you in good stead for that, right? Because um, government grant, government contract... Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, my, my experience working with PPQ certainly gave me a greater understanding of, of the way that government works. And, and when I was on the board at Metro Arts as well, which is a, a government-funded arts organisation locally here in, in Brisbane, being on the board, you get another kind of view of what it's like to get, like, how, how many hoops you have to jump through to get grants, and um, especially in that, um, in that sector. And so uh, those experiences, you know, were really good because it helped me understand that sometimes government asks the wrong question and they don't quite realise it. And so, uh, for example, we went for a grant not too long ago. Uh, sorry, we went for a tender not too long ago and the, the tender required, not, you know, nice to have, but required um, a, an ISO certified business continuity management system and i was like what the heck is what the, i've what never is seen this before yeah. and i i called up the um the certifier who helped us out with 27001 at caden because we're i said 27001 compliant which is information security and and that has a, a business continuity and and disaster recovery planning component to it and i was like well surely that's enough right like this is a tech tech program like they they just want they just want uh, certainty that there's going to be business continuity in the event of a pandemic or something like that. Um, but if we're all we're delivering is software, then surely information security covers the scope of that. Um, so when I asked my my certifier and and my my GRC kind of agent friend, um, what's a GRC? Uh, governance, risk, and compliance. So it's okay. it's kind of like um, uh, it's everything around InfoSec, uh, uh, basically. Um, rather than it's, there's the technical and then there's the, the governance. And so governance is what he specializes in. And he was like, I've never seen that ISO standard asked for in, in uh -oh. all of my experience. <laughs> and so, so, you know, that led me to 
ask the question in the in the the tender questions you know is this really what you want because we've got ISO 27001 it's got all VCDR controls in there we we've got this covered from the perspective that we're a software provider is is that enough and they were like oh yeah actually it is so uh, sometimes yeah, well, wow. yeah, and it, it always serves to ask, but um, mm. I mean, nine times out of ten, you've got non-technical stakeholders within government who just need stuff, and they go to procurement, and procurement talks to maybe the talks to the the uh, IT department or who, whichever department is looking after IT in that iteration of government, um, and they say, so what are, what do we need for this, and they'll give some consultancy internally on on the kind of standards that it needs to meet. But they might not have said that it needed to meet ISO 27001, but they might have spoken to some other governance expert who said, oh, yeah, well, you need, oh, I can't even remember what number it was, uh, 22018. I, I, honestly, I, I shouldn't just quote ISO numbers, just make <laughs> myself look look like a total amateur. It's a date time format. What yeah. are you talking about? Just that. <laughs> but lo- long story short, yeah, um, you know, going through that uh, process with Calac was um, was really great um, because they were looking to they were looking to essentially save their their culture, their their traditional knowledge and their secret and sacred knowledge um, and laws and customs and um, stories and dance and spirituality. And and so in that sense, um, uh, it was a really rewarding project because we got to, to um, I didn't even do the, the segue. I, we don't even know how we're doing the project yet. So yeah, I was, I was helping them out, get the grant. Yep. They got the grant mm-hmm. and um, prior to that point, I'd expected that, you know, I'd just have to say, cool, I'm so happy you've got this. I'll consult with you to find a service provider and, and then, you know, good luck and I'll keep helping you out. But um, what ended up happening was I was available two days a week and I had some friends who were interested, uh, one of which was Kelvin, yep. uh, in helping out one day a week. And so all of a sudden we had this ragtag bunch of, of complete pros um, working for this, you know, relatively small but mighty uh, organization in the Kimberley that represented 40 language groups uh, to build a mobile application and associated backend management and moderation system to capture secret and sacred traditional knowledge throughout the Kimberley in a way that was uh, appropriate to that culture and in a way that was secure. And, um, uh, and yeah, we, so that was another project uh, alongside some consulting that I did back to PPQ for their information security management system. They were going through ISO 27001 at the time. Um, they just wanted continuity there to make sure that the project was seen out. And, and so I kept chairing their InfoSec committee. Um, and the end, I mean, uh, all of a sudden I had a little professional services business and the only staff member was, well, I wasn't even a staff member. I was just kind of me. And yeah. um, and I was subcontracting a little bit to some other people um, and working across three projects. So it was just, it was opportunity led, really. You started off as a sole trader, right? And you were just working as you. And then you, as all of these have come about, you've actually then set up the company around it, right? It happened really quickly, actually. I I, I knew that if I was going to do that, 
that I would want to set it up as a going concern. Um, I don't like working alone. Um, I, I don't find I find it more motivating to work with other people. Let's yeah. let's put it that way. That's sort of the best yeah. way of putting it. And so collaborating with others um, gives me energy. And so uh, with that in mind, um, and also, you know, you, there, there are dry liability benefits and, and business benefits to, to having a business um, that, uh, that you don't get as a sole trader. Um, so, mm-hmm. I, and I wanted a brand as well. I don't know. There's a little bit of vanity there, I suppose. But the more that I thought about it, the more I realized that I wanted to build the kind of company that I always wanted to work for without exactly realizing it, which was the kind of company that you only had to rock up to to make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like you just need, all you need to do is rock up to your desk and do your job and you'll be making a difference. Yeah, like that to me was just incredibly motivating and I, I, I wanted to see if it could be done. I wanted to challenge myself mm-hmm. in that way. And so uh, I said to myself, well, all right, well, we'll take the giving what we can pledge. We'll, we'll pledge 10% of our company profits to highly effective charities. Um, we'll prioritize accessibility and inclusion. Um, uh, we'll, um, we'll try and target getting work in impactful projects. Of course, that, that wouldn't stop us from saying yes to a, you know, a morally neutral project um, or an organization that had an area that, um, that was dedicated to uh, inclusion or, or accessibility or social impact or uh, sustainability or, or what have you. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, we will find affinity with other social impact organizations and not-for-profits and things like that. Um, and so when that started happening, I started thinking, hey, you know what? There's, there's probably a position in the market for this. I, I haven't seen a lot of this. Mm. And around this time last year, I went to a, a conference called the Social Enterprise World Forum somewhat on a whim. Um, uh, and I rocked up there and a whole bunch of people that I already knew were there. Uh, I'd met them. <laughs> I'd met them over the years, just doing random projects, and I'd met them what, during my time on the board of Metro Arts, and uh, I'd met them in my work with the government. And all of a sudden, here they all were at this this conference. Oh, what are you all doing here? And they're like, Oh, yeah, social enterprise is great. We think it's good for these reasons, and blah blah blah. And I realised at that moment that I had actually started a social enterprise, and. Um, that there was an existing community out there of people who are doing business for good mm. um, and are getting certified by the Australian certifying body called Social Traders to become a certified social enterprise, which is basically that they go through and audit your business um, and your governance from uh, you know, governance and financial perspective to ensure that the net benefit to society from your business is more than half of what your profits are. So the primary stakeholder in the organization is actually society. Um, uh, the p- primary beneficiary of the business is society and humanity. Um, and so that was really attractive to me. Of course, that had to make me rethink the 10% of profits figure because all of a sudden that became more than 50%. 
Um, But I I did that willingly. I was like, all right, let's do this. There there is an entire community of people. Um, Government is on board. Different layers of government are on board with social enterprise to the extent that social enterprise um, gets... uh, get some benefits um, in the tender process with governments, particularly the Victorian government. They're, they're quite forward-thinking in this space. Okay. Um, and, and so it seemed like a bit of a no-brainer to be one of the few, if not the only, uh, genuine certified social enterprise that is 100% software-focused, um, potentially in the world i don't know probably not <laughs> the big claim. maybe i have maybe i haven't done enough market research yet but we're we're, we're among a very few very, a very proud few i would say so hold on so 50 percent of profits get invested into into like to a charity or just back into social enterprise or into how how does that work because that's a huge commitment so our purpose um uh, so we went through a, a social enterprise accelerator uh, off the oh, back of that, that yeah. experience. Um, so I found um, Impact Boom. Impact Boom is a, uh, a company uh, run by a guy named Tom Allen, and, and Tom has a government-sponsored program for developing social enterprises that he runs each year. Um, a great program, and helped me really kind of crystallize my understanding of A, what social enterprise was, but B, um, how Cadent fits into that landscape. Um, And it also helped us really refine down our message because at the start I was like, yeah, we're going to do the maximum positive impact for all of humanity. And that was our mission, which is like, (laughs) which is very noble and somewhat naive. Um, Somewhat. But I think, yeah, I mean, I had a pretty strong rationale for it, but I won't go there. I've recognized the error of my ways to an extent, but um, but refining that down into something that uh, was more specific to the the ways that we do make impact at Cadent um, was quite important. And so we came out of that process with a new purpose statement, which is to align technology to humanity. Right. And... There are a, a few ways that we do that. The first way is by donating money and resources to uh, AI alignment research and mm. AI policy and governance. So mm. uh, this financial year just gone, we donated $15,000 to the Gradient Institute, which is an independent research institute based in Sydney um, who are doing responsible AI, safe AI and AI alignment research. Um, and this is all under wraps, so I hope your audience doesn't um, share it too widely. But um, the yeah, this might not be the right place to be putting stuff that's under wraps. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've already let the cat out of the bag about three months ago, so it depends on who's paying attention. But um, yeah, we, we we're funding some AI original AI alignment research with them. We donated them fifteen thousand dollars cash. They're going to get a PhD student to do some original research. Yeah, and, cool. And get it published. Um, that's awesome. And yeah, uh, we're, we're really proud of it, and, and they're really excited by it. Um, it's been great working with them. Um, and so we have do you also have much input in that. So, like, as in, you're you're contributing the money, uh, yeah, for some some money towards the research. But uh, how much more do you have to do with that process? So they they're a they're a charitable organization, and they have a, a 
a research board. So the research board chooses what, what the topic is. Um, hmm. uh, of course, uh, I inquired as to whether or not they do the kind of research that I was looking to fund before yeah. uh, agreeing that they were the right organization to receive those funds. But, um, but yeah, they, they are doing this kind of work all the time. Um, they're cons- they are actually consulting to government um, on uh, responsible AI frameworks and AI safety frameworks and, and so on. So in that respect, they're philosophically completely aligned and, mm. and they have the resources um, and expertise to, to do this kind of research as well, which is fantastic. Um, we also donate... Uh, donated $10,000 to the Society for Social Implications of Technology, which is an IEEE um, uh, chapter. Um, And the IEEE, uh, for those who don't know, is basically an engineer's um, academic and and professional membership body. Um, The IEEE has a range of academic journals, um, uh, tens of thousands of members worldwide, and so the SSIT is specifically to do with where society and technology overlap and um, where the risks are uh, for society and for humanity and addressing those. And so I've been on the committee of the SSIT for, for several years. Um, and what has become clear to me over that time is that all of the good work that these people are doing, they're predominantly academics, but there are a couple of consultants as well. But uh, all of the really good work that these people are doing just doesn't see that broad an audience, you know. Um, and, of mm. course, the audience is broadening now simply by virtue of the explosion of AI and the fact that AI risk has always been on the agenda for the SSIT since 2016. Um, but uh, but having a platform for them uh, to, to us to better distribute their good work um, and make it more available um, to the community and and especially to government stakeholders who are often incredibly interested in Mm. what the SSIT has to say simply by virtue of the kinds of people who are on there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's a fascinating fascinating landscape and and they're our two beneficiaries for last financial year. Um, But we also do, um, so that's the first way we, we make impact. The other way is accessible and inclusive design and, and right. development, which I think we've covered. Um, uh, but the, the other way is that we actually do low bono and pro bono work for values aligned organizations. So um, if, uh, you know, we, we will sometimes selectively engage with um, small organizations or projects who don't have any financial means um, to assist them with, uh, digital strategy or, or software. Um, it has to be re- something re- that we really want to be doing, yeah, course, obviously. Yeah. Um, and there's often a bit of a limitation on, on the amount of time that we can spend on, on those projects, uh, especially as we're growing. Um, but uh, we do frequently offer uh, low bono rates to not-for-profits um, and values-aligned organizations. So we work with Q Music um, uh, on the Big Sound Festival, which is a music festival uh, which has some really strong uh, ethical and, and inclusion uh, objectives um, as part of their program. Um, we we work with the Palm Scheme, obviously, which is helping people in Pacific Island nations 
uh, get work in Australia with Australian employers who can't oh, find cool. Australian workers. Yep. Um, so yeah, there and there's some of the we we can redistribute our profits through uh, uh, through considerable discounts to those kinds of initiatives. Yeah. And that's a nice way of not just giving back financially, but actually being able to provide services to people who may not have the means. So, so people can get actual real professional input um, yeah. Yeah, when, they, when they don't have the dollars to, to pay for it. So, so yeah, exactly. I, and that's one of the questions I was going to ask. So as an agency, uh, and it sounds like you personally really enjoy this agency style work, like working with lots of organizations and really being able to... He's not an agency, Kelvin. He's a Sorry, studio. Sorry, <laughs> studio. I'll just drill that into my head. Uh, no negative connotations when I'm using the word. Um, but that's, that's all right. I, I know it's in, intended in the right spirit, Kelvin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- thanks for the pickup, Pat. Uh, yeah, it looks like you really enjoy that uh, and being able to contribute back to society, but also to, to, you know, to work with these other organizations that are contributing. Uh, so one of my questions was, so, and looking back at Hydric, for example, Hydric, I, I, in my mind, Cadent is the spiritual successor to Hydric. Uh, I'm, High praise indeed. Yeah, but, but actually very different in the way mm. going about your work. Is Hydric was very much music focused, very much large organizations. It had a different mission and, than, than yours. Mm. And so Hydric would, uh, Hydric in downtime, right? In agencies, you'll often have downtime. Um, you know, you'll always have something on the go, but it might not be enough to take up all the resources you have. And so we would pick up internal projects. We would be working on some internal products that could potentially be monetized or, uh, you know, so building, you know, these internal products that could potentially become something as well. And I wondered if that might be your intention as well, Uh, because it can be hard in an agency, in a studio, basically in a in a services business. Yeah, always a services business. uh, You're getting more customers in, whereas uh, one of the things that's so attractive about uh, like any kind of SaaS platform is you build a build and sell a product, and so you can sell that product multiple times, and Mm. it's perceived perceived to be easier to make that sustainable and. you know, and for it to grow because hmm. um, growing a services business obviously has a limitation on the amount of services that you can provide. Whereas growing hmm. a product business is, it's much easier to scale yeah, in theory. Uh, hmm. And so I wondered if that was going to be, uh, was, was on the cards as well for you. Uh, and as a partial answer to that, it looks like you will, you'll spend a lot of your downtime actually helping other organizations that, that may not, which really aligns with your mission, uh, which may not have the financial capacity. So you can use that downtime as a way of helping these other organizations. Uh, so do you have a do you have a plan between juggling those? Did you have any plans for internal products or not yet because you haven't found something that aligns with your values? That, that's a really good question. Um, if you asked me a year and a half ago, I think my answer would have been quite different. I would have said, yes, 100%. We've got half a dozen product ideas lined up that's really just a matter of the right time and and the right um the right resources to to kind of try one of those out Mm. um if you asked me six months ago i would have said no i don't think that's for us um uh, i i don't think we have the time uh or the energy or the focus to be able to to split our focus away um to to dedicate to the development of the product um 
if you ask me today, I would say never say never. Yeah, and the and that's partly because I've had two so, such different answers <laughs> in just the last eighteen months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, you really backflip on so, that one. I like how you've got I, one I extreme totally to the other extreme to like smack in the middle. I don't. I don't think I'm exactly in the middle. I'm. I'm certainly very much biased towards the professional services side of the business, and the reason for that is that is a more than a full time job in itself. Mm. And I think to split not just my focus but the focus of the organisation um, away from service delivery to our clients in the interests of know having a, a a bet each way so to speak on on some kind of internal product um without that internal product being completely aligned with our service de- delivery to begin with that's a pretty tough ask and would i would suggest be unworkable at as an organization of of our size so yeah. and for for uh for context we are six staff total um, and we engage with four people in a subcontract capacity on, you know, uh, several hours a week kind of thing. Um, so we are a small organization. And I think to split our focus in such a way at this kind of early stage of our development would be detrimental to the business. Um, having said that, though, you know, some of the best products that have ever come out um, have been internal tools and 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 they've kind of gone from there yeah. slack is the 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 example that comes to mind immediately they were a games company yeah and they built an internal chat client which then you know however many years 10 plus years later got bought by salesforce for several billion dollars and and then ironically they got ripped off by discord who wanted to bring it back to games i like wouldn't it be great if we had this business chat room but for gaming and that was like sort of the original point for <laughs> it's it's Slack. that spider-man meme they're just pointing yeah, at yeah, each other yeah yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so so yeah that that that's a little bit yeah like i said a little bit different uh, again um in my thinking but um yeah i would never say never i mean i the other side to that is, honestly, I think ideas are cheap and I think um, execution and dedication and clarity of vision is uh, mm. not as common as I think we all think it is. Um, oh, it's not definitely rare. And Execution is, yeah, it's just that it's incomparable to having the idea, right? And it's like, you would have come across this as well. It's like someone comes up to you and they say, oh, hey. I've got this idea. You know, if you build it for me, you can have half. And it's like yeah. you have no comprehension of how much work goes into the actual execution of delivery. Otherwise, you wouldn't say mm. that. Mm. And and idea ideas are cheap. Execution is is priceless. And um, but it also is a discipline in and of itself. You know that 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 process from going from concept to prototype to Get, getting product market fit that's that's there's an art and a science to it it's not easy hmm. um and it's actually the exception rather than the rule um yeah uh, that's that's just it, like starting a startup is like starting a restaurant like you, you're either 
if you survive the first two years, you might keep living. Yeah, you know, right. might, <laughs> might. And we yeah. talked about this in previous episodes when we, we talked mm. about Twenty Three Shout, which was Pat's startup. And so, you know, mm. VC companies know that, right? Like ninety nine out of a hundred are going to fail in the first year, and honestly, mm. ninety nine out of the remaining, or like ninety nine percent of the remaining, are going to fail in the second year. And mm. then, yeah, if you- and then continuing, right? It's just, a, it's just, a, it's just a funnel. It just keeps going down: third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. And they're just planning. If they spread their bets wide enough, they will eventually have that unicorn that pays for the entire fund, yeah. plus, you know, plus the next round. And it's at that moment that um, everybody realizes that they're just industrial scale gambling. And yeah, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it's always been, you know, there's a lot of value in VC and 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 getting funding, and you know, the value of mentorship. For me, though, it's like just getting a boss. It's like, okay, I'm going out on my own and I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to be my boss and then I'm going to take money from somebody and now I have a boss who dictates a lot. And I've seen it in a lot of companies where the vision changes or you get influenced in ways because you're now beholden. You've taken these people's money and you have a responsibility to try and return that to them at whatever scale it was that was the expectation when they came in. And so, therefore, they now have imp- they now have more than input. They have control to some extent over how you act, especially if you need more money in the future. That, well, that, that and that goes for any kind of business, right? I mean, the the fundamental idea of this current iteration of capitalism is that there is supply and there is demand, and there is a price in the middle somewhere. And um, there's a it always takes two in that respect. Um, and that doesn't go away in any in any business, I don't think. Um, I think if you, yeah, a, a younger version of myself would have said, well, all you have to do is write the contract in the right way and tell them that that's the way that the contract is structured. And when they say, I understand, then the game is over. But that's it's rarely as simple as that. You know, yes. it's it's actually the exception rather than the rule. Again, uh, that that it goes that way. It, it's often so much of it has to do with human factors in business and re- the quality of relationships. Yeah, the good part of this too is that there's a lot of VCs who now understand that sort of perception and dynamic. So you can shop around and find VCs who, you know, they might make demands of you, but they can't. You can always ignore them, right? As long as you end up delivering some sort of uh, a good proposal to them like they will happily give you more money if it makes more sense to them um but certainly i've seen it as well where i've seen a company where the founder just does whatever the vc says because i know he's just so desperate to get that next round before his company will fail and you can just see the product just being like wonky and shoddy and just like completely jumping over what is the product it changes like every six months completely yeah, changes like what it's supposed to be and it always seems yeah, and it sort of it sort of follows the um, the trends in the VC market. No, it's AI. No, it has to do with crypto. Oh, it's all these other things. I'm just like you're just doing whatever you can to try and get that next raise from them, right? Um, but yeah, if you if you got if you got some if you got some strength, you can say no and uh, go find someone else who's um, actually knows what they're doing. I guess it depends on uh, the, uh, in in services uh, selecting clients is a really important. Yeah, skill to develop uh, in the same way that I can imagine choosing a VC um, would be. Um, and if the VC, you know, what, what are the objectives of the VC? Uh, what, yeah. What's the objective of that individual in that 
VC stable? Um, what's uh, like, are you just one of many in this, uh, in this area? Um, are you going to be driven around or do they actually think that you have something? Um, uh, or, or are you just going to be one of, uh, one of a bundle of, of shareholdings that they sell off at one point? Um, you know, well, that's something I'd actually would like to ask is how do you, how do you select a good client for you? What is the criteria of what makes a good client and how do you know when to I, say no? I suppose as an extension to that, it's like, how do you get good clients interested in working with you as well? Cause that's tough. Yeah, I haven't worked that out yet, uh, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> um, <Good answer>. <laughs> not not uh, the the latter. I mean, you know, how do you how do you find clients? Because hmm. um, that is that there that's a, a form of alchemy in itself. Um, the way that we've gotten clients to date has been through trusted relationships, and I don't think that's going to change. Um, uh, developing trusted relationships allows you to have a level of shorthand. Um, where if the knowledge gap exists between you and the stakeholder, that they trust you deeply enough to allow you to act anyway and to be careful with their money and their their reputation and their liability position and, and what have you. Um, and so for that reason, the, all of the organisations that we work with, we do have that trusted relationship yeah. and that, that, that relationship shorthand. Um, uh, of course, that's not as scalable as you would, like it to be but um that's you know something that we're working on internally how, how do we help people get to know us better to the extent that when mm. we come out and say yes we're the ethical technology consultancy that they actually understand and trust that that is the case and that they have a level of expectation of a certain type of behavior from us um so so yeah trusted relationships um, is is the big headline there? I suppose the the other side to that, uh, the other side to your question is, um, how do you how do you choose the right people to work with? And that that's another mm. a slightly different um, question as well. Um, of course, you could say that it's it's trusted relationships the other way as well. Do I trust that this person is going to do what yep. they say they'll do? Yep. And will they give you the level of respect that you? deserve because you're an expert in your field or you're a specialist in that area um i think there is another element to it for us as well which is that we have to we have to be careful about the kinds of associations that we make with brands or with organizations because we have a we have a stance we we say that you know we're, we're an ethical technology consultancy uh we work uh, with inclusion and accessibility as a core tenet of our work. Um, we have a range of controls in place to make sure that digital rights and security are upheld. Um, we don't want one project ruining all of that goodwill that we've, we've worked yeah. so hard mm. to, to build up over such a long time. And so, yeah, mm. there, there is a level of care that we have to have when we engage with a new client to make sure that, um, of course, they understand our position on, on that kind of thing and they have a level of appreciation for that. Mm. Um, but also that, um, that we will be trusted to act in the ways that we need to act in order to be consistent with our values. Um, and uh, we we've only recently have been working in a concerted fashion on our ways of working and our culture and our values and, kind of the, the team is leading that process, which is fantastic. Um, 
And one of the big messages that came out of that process was that integrity has to be our number one. It has to be our number one value. Yeah. If we're taking this position, which is basically, we're, we're basically moral high grounding the whole, <laughs> the whole technology <laughs> industry. Uh, um, and, and, you know, that, that's uh, like, that's, that is funny uh, to, to say, but, we, you know, in practice we are. And, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We have to have integrity and authenticity to those ideas and those values in order for us to realize the kind of impact that we want to have. Yeah. And yeah. that comes very much back to your original and, point, right? Where it's like you want mm. people to come to work, sit down at their desk, and do their job and be contributing positively to society. And so I, 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 that's, that's why people are working with us yeah. now. Right. Because at the, at the start, it was, yeah, we're a, we're a kind of a little consultancy thing and we, we give some money away and, you know, that's just what it is. And if that's the kind of thing that you're into, then come on, come on for the ride. But now we actually, in all of our job ad headings, ethical technology consultancy and our, the number of interviews that we have with people who just aren't interested in society or ethics or, or values has shrunk to less than 20% of, of the kind of people that we're interviewing. So the, the kind of people that we're interviewing, we're, we're interviewing fewer, but we're interviewing more who are aligned with this idea of doing some mm-hmm. good in your, in your day job yeah. um, rather than having to earn enough in your day job to hope to make some kind of impact one day when you're retired or, or on your weekends or, or what have you. So. And I think in the quality of, like I had... I was around as you've done some of your recent hiring and the quality of the applicants that you've had come through since you changed the style of the job ads was phenomenal. It's just really, Mm. and you had quite a lot of applicants directly, uh, Mm. which we we don't use recruiters. We, we did try recruiters initially, um, but we found that the recruiters weren't really hitting the mark for us as far as values were concerned. And that's not to say we wouldn't hire somebody who didn't have a really strong alignment to our values. And we've, we've worked with a lot of people who don't kind of subscribe to our full worldview or anything like that. Mm. And where we want that, that there is a diversity element to that. Um, uh, But when we're building this core team, it's important that we have again, that, that shorthand with one another to be able to say, uh, to, to not have to convince somebody else of the core tenets of the business in order yep. to just get the day-to-day work done hmm. um, because they somebody might want a shortcut of process that we think is important or somebody might not think that uh, a particular security control is appropriate for this stage of the project or, or what have you. You know, we, We're not going to have to get into that kind of discussion every time we cross that bridge. Um, so yeah, we found the recruiters were were a little bit wrong for us, and we've had some really good success with direct hires. Yeah, I, I was I was actually just genuinely impressed because ten like rec- recruiters serve like a, a very important uh, piece in the market for a lot of organisations, uh, and I was just really uh, really impressed with like the fact that you were getting applicants of the quality that you were getting directly, just f- like from the job ads, and I think a lot of that came from. You know, you're very clear in the way that you position the company and people do want to contribute positively when they come to work. They do want to actually feel like they're doing some good mm-hmm. when they come to work each day. 
So obviously that resonated with people and has worked really well. So congrats. I was just so impressed. Thanks, mate. All right. Uh, also <laughs> on the on the value point, I think, and I wanted to use that as a segue because you have just started your own podcast. Uh, mm. I, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun with the... No, I'm not. You I saw a post on No, LinkedIn. no, it was on ah, social media. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. all good. I'm not jumping the gun here. But <laughs> is that... I'd like to, you to talk about that a bit. And my initial question was, is that part of the you know, building these relationships with people and, and being able to demonstrate the quality of the person you are and your values in a longer form format. Mm. I'm not, I don't think my method of communication is, uh, is appropriate for short form conversations. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, I have a tendency to want to really dig into a topic and, and and make mistakes in the conversation as well, you yep. know, like, uh, and I, I think that that um, makes the medium of a podcast kind of appropriate for us because, and, you know, this this might be scary for some people to kind of hear, but we're learning as we're doing, mm. as we're doing. Um, mm. And... Some people might say, "Oh, they don't. They don't know what they're talking about. They're not experts. Then they're just they're just trying to, you know, they're doing things and they don't know what they're doing." No, that's that's not what this is. Um, there's a reason why every ISO standard has continuous improvement in it. It's because it forces everybody to acknowledge that they're not perfect and that they can do it better. Yeah. You know? So, and so in that respect, yes, uh, we we are learning as we're doing, and part of that learning is. Um, engaging with people outside of our our organization to learn more about what they're doing to inform our practice um but also you know we had to think really critically about what the objectives of the podcast would be and you're right it does come back to that development of trusted relationships because at the end of the day if you see cadent flash across your email um, inbox or, or what have you, like, let's say you're a, a CEO or an executive director of an organization and oh yeah, Cadent comes across the, the desk. What's that? I don't, I don't know what that is. Who are these guys? You know, you want to be able to engage with the people, but yeah. not necessarily have to have a meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, I, you know, nor do they necessarily want to part with any money in order to understand whether or not they're the kind of people that they can work with. Yes. And uh, especially as, you know, business leaders are, are getting a little bit skittish about the state of the economy and how things are going to go over the next couple of years and purse strings maybe a little tightening a little bit. We thought it was appropriate to kind of get our conversation out there a little bit and give people the opportunity to mm -hmm. learn who we are what we stand for, what we're interested in, um, and have that be a, a platform for uh, prospective clients, but also for anybody interested in the intersection of humanity and technology and ethics um, to, to come and, and have a bit of a listen to the kinds of things that are coming up and uh, the kinds of things that are happening in the world right now because it's easy to be overwhelmed. Yeah, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that the... Uh, while I think it's fantastic that um, we're seeing the concept of AI ethics in 
mainstream news channels now. Um, and uh, I think that it, it <laughs> as somebody who has spent almost all of his spare time uh, in this area for the better part of three years, you know, pre-generative AI boom, uh, thinking about the, the potential consequences of widespread powerful artificial intelligence mm. do i consider myself an expert absolutely not yeah <laughs> and, and so you know I, I i think that there is space now to be having more of these kinds of conversations um and opening the door to people who aren't necessarily academics and aren't necessarily in the technology industry to to learn a little bit more and and participate a little bit more in the conversation because that's the only way we're going to ensure a values alignment yeah, and, and AI ethics is a really fascinating topic. Uh, and I'd love to actually just ask on that. Sorry, no, you go, no, you, you go you first, go. Cool. I was going to go on a, rant, a ramble. So <laughs> not a rant, but a ramble. Um, <laughs> I could tell a ramble is about to happen. Yeah, like yeah, I've got to cut him off. <laughs> um, I was going to ask about that as well, because you mentioned AI alignment, funding some research for AI alignment as well. For like AI alignment is a huge topic, and I feel like a lot of people don't know what AI alignment is, or how that actually even manifests, mm-hmm. or what that could actually look like um, in, in like small scale to large scale, and the work that's been done around this already. Can you just quickly explain AI alignment and why aligning AI is so so important for AI research? Um, I'll do my best. Uh, as I said, I, I'm not an expert in this area. I, I'm I, I consider myself a concerned citizen, um, so it's smarter mm. than the average bear, but definitely not an, an expert. Um, so my understanding of, of the AI alignment problem is that when we build an autonomous system, we give it objectives. Mm. Um, it's input-output kind of scenario. And if we say, okay, your objective is uh, the, the best analogy that's out there is the paperclip problem. You know, mm. you have a, an autonomous system uh, that you, you give it the objective, okay, your objective is to create paperclips as efficiently and as at higher volume as possible. Um, and syst- like if we kind of anthropomorphize the system a bit for the sake of the, uh, the, sake of the um, analogy, uh, the autonomous system goes off and finds all of the resources that it needs to make paperclips and, uh, and starts hoarding all of those resources and then finds these incredibly efficient and, and, and highly precise and incredibly prolific ways of creating paperclips. Um, this, this autonomous system uh, has not been bound in any way it will, because you've given it that pure objective, it will find as many resources as it possibly can and pull those resources together as, as quickly and, and as effectively as it can to make those paper clips. And, of course, the logical conclusion to this philosophical scenario is that uh, humanity is put at risk by the paperclip machine. And it works out... Yeah, it works out it can make paperclips out of human bone. And, you know, it's just like wh- whatever the, the logical conclusion is there, you know, the, the point of that kind of analogy is that if we don't align autonomous systems to human values, we're putting humanity at risk. And so hmm. the question then is, okay, well, how do we bake human values into autonomous systems? And, and hmm. that, so that's the domain that we're, we're dealing with. And 
in my travels over the last few years, I've kind of learned that there are a number of different ways that are competing that people think that they can encode human values into machines, into generative AIs, for example, um, uh, companies that are pursuing artificial general intelligence uh, are, are trying to take this route of, all right, well, we'll get the sum total of human knowledge and we'll put it into the machine and the machine will just magically come out as this enlightened being, right? <laughs> um, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case. Um, and, and then human history is pretty yeah, bloody. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, like what we have right now, and, and this is where we get into the opinion section. Um, the, <laughs> what we have right now is these systems that are a mirror to mm. what humans are like when they communicate. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what we've got right now. We, we don't have uh, human values encoded into, um, uh, into generative AIs. We have human espoused values. In, encoded mm-hmm. into gener- generative AIs. And the generative AIs are uh, um, doing their best to give us the answer that it thinks we want to hear based on the things that it quote-unquote knows. Yeah, I remember reading the uh, the technical paper out of OpenAI when they released GPT-4. And one of the things that they were worried about internally was that they found that the model could be actively deceiving them, working to acquire power or working to hold on to that power while giving responses back to the engineers or the people testing it for alignment that were positive to, the, to what they were testing for, right? So it was basically learning, to, like it had learned to lie and I remember that was a big news topic at the time. And I was reading that. I'm just like, but why, why are you surprised that it's something that just yeah, read through some total of human, human knowledge, conversations? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it just read through the internet, basically. It read through transcripts of YouTube videos. It read through Stack Over, read through all these different places. Learn to deceive you. Like that is like lying is such an active part of, of human conversation that it would be silly to think that the AIs didn't do it, mm, right? Mm. would be like something that we train purely on human data. The other interesting example is with Tesla when they recently removed all actual hard-coded software engineering um, limits on their, on, their, on their self-driving model and switched purely to a, a neural network which had learned from the videos from human driving. It suddenly stopped stopping at stop signs <laughs> because they found when they tested the data <laughs> that only like 1% of people actually stop at the stop signs. Everyone else just rolls through. So now the cars just roll through the stop signs. Yeah. Um, there's that like double-edged sword of actually basing something based off human behavior. Like, guess what? It's going to be just like you and nobody's and, perfect. You know what's really funny? Uh, you know, it, it harks back to beginner psychology lectures back when I was in my early 20s, you know, where where they would say self-report is the worst measure for actually understanding humans, human psychology. Hmm. We've just trained some of the most powerful software systems in the world on human self-report. Like th- hmm. that says to me that there is a, a bit of a, Oh, I nearly said day of reckoning coming, which is very apocalyptic, but it, it's not, it's, that's not what I meant. Uh, <laughs> I think there's, it's always naivety, right? I, it's, it's just- I think there's a, a day of reckoning between the, the humanities and technology because we're like mm-hmm. humanities and technology now being forced to work together in an area where they, neither of them are experts and that's in philosophy and so all of a sudden you've got all of these very complex and conflicting ideas testing not 
human capabilities or or whether or not uh, or human problem solving ability we're testing the limits of language because mm. one of the one of the key problems that i see play out regularly on forums like linkedin and uh and like in in popular discussions on on mainstream media about ai is people are using the same word to mean different things constantly and the, my favorite um word at the moment um is intelligence. What is intelligence? Can you tell me what intelligence is? Uh, I heard um, uh, uh, Mark Andreessen on a on uh, on a podcast recently try to tell the the host of the podcast, Sam Harris is his name, um, that artificial intelligence will be good for humans. Because it's gonna be like super. I'm talking about artificial like general intelligence, super intelligence. Yeah. Will, will be good for humans because it will be more intelligent than humans. That that doesn't make sense even to a high schooler. You know, it just uh, the, and these are the these are the captains of industry that are that have a significant amount of power and, and influence over the way that artificial intelligence is going to be forged over the coming decade or decades. Mm. Um, mm. Ha- Yuck. <laughs> it just doesn't make a ton of sense. The other one is uh, th- this was on um, AI Explained. There's a YouTube channel called AI Explained, which is great. I recommend it to everyone. Um, uh, I hear him get more and more worried by the day. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, Every episode, he yeah. just gets more and more nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it started out quite innocuous and interesting. He's like, oh, yeah, and there's, wow, this is a huge paper and it just got released. And now he's like, here are the eight things that happened this week that are actually a huge problem and like, goes in to explain some of the things that are happening. One of the things is uh, he, he highlighted that... Um, uh, there's uh, there's been a bit of a, a labeling problem uh, to do with the word logic. Um, the back in uh, maybe six or, or nine months ago, they were saying that GPT three is really good at logic, um, but this most recent paper said that uh, the the logic of A equals B, therefore B equals A, is unable to be like it's. Uh, LLMs are not good no, at solving that problem not good mm. at that because they they don't logic and reason. No, that that's that's exactly right. So that that's what they're saying. He, he was saying that um, uh, that this particular problem highlighted that you know these LLMs are are not good at at logic and reasoning. Um, but then he goes on to say, but I just had a look at the dictionary meaning of logic, and it says reasoning and i had a look at the dictionary meaning of reasoning and it says logic so uh, what, what even is it can somebody explain it to us <laughs> so, yeah. we're, we're getting into a, and consciousness is another one of those words that a lot of people use but don't actually understand because hot tip everyone we don't know what consciousness is yet um even the leading neuroscientists and, right. and neuropsychologists and psychologists don't even know what consciousness is philosophers have been arguing this thing for hundreds thousands right, of okay. years so and we, know, we still don't like, have an answer there we know when when it exists but we don't know what it is like we well we tell that we have we don't even know we think we do. when it exists yeah. i mean no it's it's fundamentally difficult to measure like we we don't even have a, an, an agreed definition just yet yeah right um and there are some people who think 
that, uh, and this is this is the the weird and wonderful section. There are some people who think that consciousness exists uh, in the gap between atoms. You know, like the the like consciousness is level. actually a, a fun, yeah, it's at, it literally at a quantum level and is part of the fabric of the universe. So, like all of these conversations are still happening, and it's naive of anyone to say of anyone, I think, to say that oh well, uh, it's not conscious because X and Y and Z reason. Um, that that just something, something that yeah you can't a system can never fully understand itself right so it, like in my opinion humans will never know themselves as a conscious thing uh, completely ever I'd like uh, the analogy I heard would a virtual machine ever truly one hundred percent know itself it can't because there's overhead taken out of its resources in order to actually manage it that right? is a, a strong philosophical thing. assertion there Pat I, I think there'd be yeah. a, a lot of people who'd argue <laughs> with you on that one. Well, you know, they perhaps with external tools like AI that have more capacity than us, it could try and dumb it down in a way that we could understand or it could, you know, understand us in ways that we don't understand. Mm. But I don't think it's possible to 100% utilize or understand yourself. Even Arthur Penrose, a, a famous British uh, physicist, has come out and said that he doesn't believe that consciousness is actually a physical thing anymore. He do, he he was when he was young, he thought that consciousness was just explained by physics, by electrons, etc. But now he's of the strong belief that there must be something else that we can't see or something that we don't understand because he said it just defies explanation. There must be something there. This is got, this is awesome. This is such an interesting conversation. I'm like we could actually just have an entire episode on this. <laughs> And then we can have that hot tub consciousness uh, conversation again. Oh my <laughs> goodness, that's uh, that's some pretty gnarly stuff. Um, uh, yeah, we could go down that track far out. But I don't think that'd be. Have I been here before? <laughs> am I am I a vat in a larger machine? Is this just a video yeah, game we all play when we get is, bored in our future? This is a simulation. That we're in it. It's happening. Yeah. Um, so, on that, what's next for Caden? Uh, do you have like? Do you have plans? Are you playing it by ear? Do you want to grow quickly? Do you like? Do you have a specific size you want to get to? Um, no, no. There's. I haven't put any limits on anything uh, just yet. Um, the one thing that we're doing at the moment is um, we're we're looking to grow sustainably at the moment. Yeah, that's that's the thing that we want to make sure because um, I've been in scenarios where the growth happens quickly. Um, existing clients suffer. Um, uh, you know, it's it's not good for the people working there either because they're often uh, challenged by, you know, the things that they're forced to focus on and, and they're forced to split their focus in order to do part of the job. Yeah. Um. So in that respect, yeah, sustainability of growth is is really important to us. But we are we are looking to grow. Um. The next milestone for us is, I think, around that that kind of ten person permanent mark. Um, but um, a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of smart people are saying, "Don't get staff; just get some contractors and, and kind of uh, have a bit of a variable workforce there." Which I think is also a good idea. So I'm not uh, I'm not completely averse to those things either. Um, the kind of work we want to be doing is the kind of work that is is completely aligned to to us as an organization which is um in environments where we can make an outsized impact um so often that's in social impact orientated organizations or social enterprises or in not-for-profits 
um, who often deal with organizations that don't share their philosophical values or, or don't align to their, their view of the world um, or haven't had experience in that area. Um, it's often with government as well. Uh, government has really high standards when it comes to uh, social impact and accessibility and, and a high high watermark for things like cybersecurity, which we're, we're skilled in. So um, in that respect, yeah, we, we are pushing the boat out to uh, the social impact sector and, and the government sector at the moment to, uh, to understand how we might be able to help. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, that's, that sounds like a really smart plan. I, I, every time I've seen an organisation grow too quickly... It doesn't end well because uh, you know, from an it ethical topples. perspective, yeah. you want to actually look after yourself as well. And that's where organizations grow quickly. Oftentimes the staff will suffer. Almost, almost always the staff mm. will suffer. Uh, and that's not mm. great long term for your organization because some of the best people will leave. Uh, and yeah. yeah, like in services organizations, well, in every organization, your staff are key and keeping good people is key. So, yeah, I think that's a really smart play. And that's such a good segue to another question I had, which was what are your best tips for actually managing a good culture Ooh, nice in question. a company? Well, I hope, I hope that we uh, have a good culture. No, I, I, I do know we have a good culture. Um, <laughs> uh, I think there is a um, – this is an entire specialism in itself. Um, so I've only got my experience to go on. My experience is that culture is um, is organic, uh, and it's not just top down and it's not just bottom up. It's it's all directions at all times. <laughs> um, it's not just a pizza party once a week. Well, or- no, I mean it's got to be. I I think it comes back to values, and making sure that the people that are participating in the organization have a strong enough shared values alignment that um, that you will. I, I mean, th- there are a lot of common themes coming through here and some of the things that I'm saying, but um, that there, there is a bit of a shorthand when you're working together. You, you, there's trust mm. when you're working together. Um, and yeah, culture is not a set of behaviors as much as it's um, a set of shared ideas um i i I don't know managing culture it just seems it it seems somewhat kind of paradoxical uh i i wouldn't know what i i i know what i do as a manager Hmm. and uh that is to empower people um and to back people and to trust people at every step of the way um to understand the mistakes happen uh, to understand that there's always opportunity for improvement, um, to understand yeah. that sometimes there are things that you just have to get in and do and, and you just have to tough it out for a little while to get to the the other side, uh, that there will be shared challenges, but there will be shared victories. And and all of those things are all the right things to say, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it comes down to the people that are participating in that culture as well. And I've mm. I've been there when... I've done all of those things as a, as a manager and as a leader and it, it just doesn't work because um, the, the alignment wasn't there. Because it's and, not just top-down. Uh, the values were well, shared. Right? Like it is yeah, bottom-up exactly. as well. I think mm. top-down is very yeah. important part of that because the top is setting the example. But it, 
you're also very outnumbered. If you, if you don't get it back from the yeah. bottom, right? It's, it's like a two-way relationship. Both sides need to be part of it. And sometimes as an employee, we've gone in there expecting a good culture and we haven't received that top down. And certainly sometimes, like I've worked in companies with some really great culture where top down really sets that example. And there were employees on the bottom who didn't send it back up, right? And so... Um, like there's that two-way relationship it like germinates across the entire company. Yeah, I think the the just to add to that a little bit, um, I've run out of words now. No, there was nothing there. <laughs> I, was, I was like, <laughs> like was it? No, no, it went away. It's fine. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Kelvin, sorry, no, I interrupted no. you. So my, my, my experience with that as well, and that's why Top Down is so important, is so when I worked at Ozstar, uh, you know, technology wasn't great, but as an organization, it was a great place to work. And that was very much set by the top down. Uh, but then again, like good hiring. And I, th- and I think this is something that you've done well is you've laid out the foundation of what your organization stands for to begin with, which helps you get people that align with that so that you can actually have in both directions. And, and you've made it from what I've seen very clear that, uh, hey, here's our core values. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where we stand, but let's learn and grow together. And so you want input mm. from everybody. And I think that's also what makes, and from my working with you, I know that's the case, right? I know I can always sit down and have a discussion with you about any issue or concern that I might have, um, but, and vice versa, like we work together because you know the same, you know, you can sit down and tell me, Hey, mm. uh, I've got this issue, concern, whatever. And then we come, you know, we work it out. Uh, and at us, uh, that, that definitely existed. It, as soon as Foxtel took over, it was amazing. You replace the top layers and the entire organization changed from one that was, it felt like it felt, it actually did feel like a family. It was an incredible place to work uh, as, you know, as good as working in a call center can be. Uh, and it went to a hostile environment within, within a month because of the senior, senior leadership changed. Uh, mm, yeah, certainly I've seen that as well, unfortunately. Yeah. There is a something that I've seen happen in, well, often it's been when I've, I've first started at organizations where it's clear that there is a disconnect between the software team and the, the company. Um, and it's usually that knowledge gap. There's this perception that, oh, well, they do the tech things, you know, that we, I, I would never hope to be able to have a human conversation with with that group of people, <laughs> yeah. and vice and vice versa. Like yeah, the the software team is like, ah, oh, I don't like going over there because they they ask me questions about stuff that I don't really feel confident in all the time, and and they ask me about the bugs in the software that I I know exists that I I that I have good reasons for not fixing and. Um, uh, of course, they're too hard. Uh, well, I mean, some of the good reasons are they haven't reached the top of the priority list, but that's a, that's another conversation. Yeah, I think the um, because uh, you know we're in uh, nine times out of ten we're in businesses and businesses have scarce yeah. resources, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, I think that bridging that gap is really important for organisations that that have a tech function. Because some of the best scenarios that I've been in is where the business and the technology function is completely aligned. They, do, they see each other as peers. They don't see 
kind of service and user mm. or, or customer or whatever internally, they'll realize that they're on the same team and they're all working to the, towards mm. the same objectives. And that has the effect of clarity of focus, but also uh, has the effect of improving culture and kind of breaking down those silos. Um, and what happens when you, you improve culture, align people and break down silos, you get better software yeah. um, and you get better business outcomes and then everybody's happy. Yeah, and better so. staff retention and better customer retention and just everything better. Mm-hmm. So one final thing. And again, we're about two hours in. So uh, mm-hmm. we'll see. And and you've noticed I've completely blanked yeah, a couple yeah. of times and that's how you know that I'm really <laughs> kind of running out of juice. Draining, right? Like I'm at about a two-hour mm-hmm. limit. So maybe we'll save mm. this for another, again, another time to catch up. Yeah. Another podcast. Um, yeah. yeah. We've, got, we've got one lined up already, but uh, I, what I'd love is getting one of the things that I also like, and one of the reasons we wanted to start talking to people in this podcast is to get, uh, it, it, it expands your worldview, right? Every time you actually go deep with somebody and hear their story and even finding out the mm. motivations, like we both work in the tech sector. You used a whole bunch of acronyms that I do not know the meaning of, that I've never heard of, that I only called you out on a couple of them. And I'm like, I feel like I should know these, but I don't. And it challenges you, right? And you grow through being challenged. And so, you know, I have spent mm. a lot of time in the early stage startup in the last kind of five years or so, which is its own little world. And so, uh, and I, I listened to the majority of input I get uh, in the business spaces, like indie hacking and bootstrapping, which again is completely different than the style of software, the style of organizations you're working with. Uh, so I'd love to get your input on our indie hacks at some point. And mm. like, you, you, <laughs> you may like you may think they're silly, you uh, may not understand, like, and I think that's fine, but you may also just have a completely different perspective that we may not have thought of. Uh, like, yeah, I actually, us. I, yeah. I'm ethical. <laughs> uh, let's just see how we go because we can always cut this section or save it for another conversation. But I actually think, Pat, your current side project is really relevant for the way that for James, uh, not necessarily mm. for you, for your organization, but there's a real value alignment there, I think. Uh, Pat, did you want to talk about lugs for a second? Just explain- yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to ask also you. Yeah, I'd love to ask your opinion on staying on that original vision mission statement with Lugs too. So I am uh, quite deaf, unfortunately. I'm completely deaf in my left ear. I'm going more deaf in my right. My hearing is being sustained with steroids, essentially. Um, And I realized when I lost my hearing completely earlier this year that it's back now, that I, in case you haven't noticed, <laughs> <laughs> um, that my, that it's, it's really hard to communicate with people in any sort of effective way, whether it be on uh, a, a call or whether it be in a real life conversation, especially for someone like me to communicate with my doctors was also quite hard. Some of them had transcription software. It was kind of crappy. Some of them didn't. Um, so I, I put together this prototype in a couple of days, which let you basically transcribe all your audio from your microphone and your computer. The key to that, though, is local. So the data's not going anywhere. Ah, cool. Yeah. So the idea was you can use this offline at a cafe. Unlike other solutions, which are all just reselling Google's uh, speech APIs, they stream everything up to the cloud. And that Google probably has like a whole bunch of ISO certifications around where that security goes in order to be able to use this in medical applications. Um, and then it'll stream the results back down. But for lugs, it's all local on your computer. It can transcribe as fast as your computer can run. And 
the original mission for this was I'm going to make it free because I understand that people with hearing loss aren't always the richest people in the world. They don't always have, um, you know, fancy software development jobs and it's the ethical thing to do. But then I also had a whole bunch of people around me saying, like, if you don't get rewarded for this, everybody is just going to rip you off left, right and center and you'll lose all motivation to develop it. So I put a, a very low one-time fee on it. It was 30 bucks, buy it, it's yours for life. You get all the updates, et cetera. And then if you're a business, then you can opt to pay for the more expensive version. You know, guess what? How many people have? Nobody. Um, but it's still at the business version. It's like 300 bucks versus the current competitors, 3000 a month. Uh, so it's quite quite undersold. But also, as time has been going on, all the feedback I've gotten from people who've actually bought and used the thing is like, this is great for my job as a project manager, but I don't have hearing loss. Or this is great for my job as a, a, a software developer, but I don't have hearing loss. And they're all wanting these new features that are pulling me away from the original vision statement idea, which is that this thing is built for people with hearing impairment. This is to assist people with hearing impairment. Either you have it or you're having a conversation with somebody who has it. And I think that's also where the uniqueness of the software comes into play as well. Like it's very it's very different from others. And I think that's in a good good way. Most of it, certainly a good way. It's aimed for, like, for people with, like me, it's perfect. This is going to get condensed down, sorry, when I edit it. I'm just rambling at this point. But if I go down that style of, oh, well, it's just a utilitarian app to transcribe in real time and then put it out and it also you can pull up recordings and post transcriptions, et cetera, then it's going to change it. And I'm also kind of worried about losing that original intention of, of losing with Lugs AI. Like I could just slap that 60 bucks a month MRR on it and start building some fancy MRR graph mm. and putting it out on Twitter and be one of those people. Don't be, don't be those um, people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, and I, 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 but I also recognize like it's not very profitable just going after people with hearing impairment. From what I've done so far with research, going after medical, it has some chances because it's so much cheaper than other solutions. Even if I charge businesses an M- uh, monthly or yearly recurring revenue, um, it has some chance, and that's I don't find that too objectionable because these businesses have very large profits, um, but. It, going after individuals, certainly, I think the price should stay low or there should be like some way. Prove to me you're deaf and I'll give it to you for free or something like that. Yeah, you know? <laughs> there, there is there, that. that is one of the things that crossed my mind. I guess, yeah, you, you, the main problem that you've kind of posed there is like, you know, I had this original mission and and now in order to make it kind of A, worth my while to continue with because, you know, I have to mm. eat as well um, and B, uh, in order to, you know, impact the most amount of people, I have to go with the customer to a certain extent, right? Like I can't just stick yeah. to my guns out of out of sheer doggedness. Um, I mean, my my gut response as somebody who's running a social enterprise is that you should investigate the social enterprise model um, or or the the social enterprise models plural because th- there are a couple mm-hmm. of of um, different models um, and work out what your mission actually is because if yeah. your mission is to help the most people with hearing loss, does that have to be with the app as you designed it and built it? 
Um, and because yeah. that those are two different things, right? And I had to learn this as well recently when I was through the accelerator. I was like, no, my mission, my mission really is to make the maximum positive impact on the future of humanity. It, it, it really is that. And anybody who makes me choose anything else, they don't understand me as a human. And hmm. I struggled with that for like several weeks of the accelerator. And I realized that I wasn't the business. I was a custodian of it. It was something, it was oh, apart from me. Interesting. It, it, I it, like, and my personality type, I tend to, one of the reasons it makes me bring my whole self to my, my job almost anywhere I go is uh, and makes me have strong opinions and care so deeply is because I identify with the role that I'm playing. Mm. Um, and sometimes I forget that, no, that's just a job. You, I am my own person. And so I had to do that again, but with my business. And in order to clarify mm. and arguably give myself a better shot at achieving my goal, I had to reimagine and refine and uh, put together a little bit more of a cohesive purpose for the business so that I could yeah. get laser focused on that. Um, what that had the effect of doing is helping me cut out a whole load of crap and help me think really clearly about what it is that I'm taking out there. Um, I mean, knee-jerk reaction to me is like, yeah, dude, make all the money and give it away for free to individuals on a like on a grant basis, um, and like create the core, and the core might be open source or something like that. But then everything else that you build on top of it doesn't have to be open source, right? Like you can you can build an entire ecosystem around this core um, of applications and use cases and features and things that are valuable for different reasons to different people and and you can have your your user personas and you can cater to each of those separately um Mm -hmm. and with all of that money you can pour that you know a portion of that back into development of the core open source application which is consumed by you know tens thousands hundreds of thousands of, of people with hearing loss um mm-hmm. uh and you might have a like a reinvestment of profits beyond that as well you might give give something i'd love to do yeah actually. give money to to um mm. highly effective charities in the space of hearing loss and then all of a mm. sudden you've got this a commercially very successful product b this very uh really well looked after core technology and c all of the impact that you wanted to have and more um so mm. it, it's kind of using the capitalist model against itself to just m- <laughs> make make the maximum pos- possible impact um yeah. within within the yeah. the scope of your your effort so yeah I, I think that's definitely something i'm gonna have to do as well it's just, just that like i would really like this to have a more social um side of it as uh, to it as well and i think if i can get away with charging businesses 
um, a license model, which is going to be cheaper for a better product. And if I can actually keep up going out there and doing this thing, having that social enterprise side of it is also going to be fantastic. Like, hey, you you guys, you know, you work with hearing loss patients. Guess what? You know, 50% of our profits go back into researching hearing loss. And also, it's going to save you a bunch of money anyway. A lot of, um, um, a lot of uh, the latest Y Combinator schools coming through, cohorts coming through, are doing that kind of, yeah, we, we build this open source core and then we just offer it as a service to people and the as a service bit is where we make our money. So, And you'd obviously use yeah. us because we build it, right? Um, and even MUI, right? Like they, they are very profitable and all they do is sell enterprise support to yeah. people and enterprises are more than happy to pay it in order to get it into and, the and don't And uh, one thing I'll pick you up on, you said get away with charging. But Sorry, yeah, that is the wrong. <laughs> you're not getting away with anything because, as you running away with the money, as, as you said, organisations are paying thousands for a product mm. that you are charging tens for. So that that's not getting away with anything. That's meeting the market where it is and giving them the level of service that they expect, um, or exceeding which it does cost thousands, uh, or exceeding yeah. it significantly. Yeah, or significantly exactly. less money. We, we could go into like pricing psychology and stuff as well. Like so, some, some entire businesses are built off the fact that their brand implies that they should charge a certain price and it's the brand that people are paying for, like handbags and shoes yeah. and God knows what else. Apple. It, it, yeah, well, Apple's, Apple's a pretty good example. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. 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 My key takeaway is actually to take a step back and like what is your... Like, what would you like to accomplish? Like, what's your goal with this product? Uh, and I think that comes down to, yeah, you know, how much do you want it to support yourself and how much would you like to give back? And and you're right, the original goal of being able to help people with hearing and hearing impairment does go, like, if you've got more money, you can do more good with it. And so if you can make a sustainable product that you can then reinvest in other areas and research, things like that, that's hugely beneficial. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing that's so easy to lose track of. It's like, what's my goal with this product? You know, how big do I want it to be? Uh, you know, what do I want the outcomes to be? So I think that's that's a really good call out as well. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you very much for that advice. I'm definitely going to go yeah, away and think about nah, this. Good, no, it, it's just, advice is free, mate. Uh, take it, take it at its value. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, like if you do choose to um, explore more of that stuff, um, yeah, there, there's. There are loads of social enterprise, um, what would you call them, support mechanisms out there, um, and there'd be a mm-hmm. lot of people really interested in hearing that story as well. So that's awesome, Kelvin. You got to talk about yours. Yeah, yours you is got very another, interesting. Say Fifteen minutes, and I'll sure, mate. Go right. for it. So yeah. disconnect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> um, so what I'm working on at the moment is, so I, like, you know, I speak Spanish uh, and you know, I study linguistics and I've really gotten back into my language learning lately. Uh, I'm really enjoying uh, learning Portuguese. I got Jack a Russian and I've left it for a while. Uh, I will get back to it because I don't want to lose all of the, and interestingly, you know, I was learning Russian to speak with my Ukrainian friends and family. And so anyway, I've been stitching together and this idea came from pats because i was sitting i like i have a copy of it and i was using it and i'm like oh man it like it understands me so well i should just stitch this together with chat gtp and um you know another software to turn text back into speech again and make myself a language learning partner because uh it's incredibly hard when learning a language to go from no speaking to speaking learning to read learning to uh learning to listen 
and learning to write, uh, like they're separate skills to speaking. And there, there's, there are a lot of resources available to help you do that. And don't get me wrong, there are resources available to help you start speaking. But most people struggle to get over that I'm going to sound and like an idiot uh, for a while until I can start stringing sentences together. Uh, and talking to yourself is very hard because you've got nobody to give you feedback. And one of the biggest things when I was studying second language acquisition for my honors, uh, there was that theory that the negotiation of meaning is such a key aspect to learning a language because it's like, I say something and it's wrong. You understand that it's wrong and then ask me what I meant. And then I have to listen to you and work out what you said and then repeat it again, or you'll repeat it back to me and I'll repeat it back to you. And eventually you get to this point of understanding. Uh, and, you know, and in the process, I've learned a whole bunch of language. And so I thought, well, what, what if you could just use the, use a bunch of AI technologies to get you from zero to one? So I've built a prototype and it works insanely well, uh, for like my, my spoken Portuguese. So learning Portuguese from Spanish is quite easy comparative. Like I've been doing Russian for two years. I still can't sing, string together a sentence. I've been doing Portuguese for about four months now, and I can actually have a basic conversation now. Uh, but this prototype of the app has helped me get from that zero to one stage and from one to two and maybe even three uh, remarkably well because I can sit down with it every day and just have a 15, 20-minute conversation or like I'll be watching a TV program in Portuguese or like watching a YouTube channel and then I can stop and then go and practice the words that I've learned. And it corrects me and, so I, I'd like to make, I, I, this, is, this is what I'm passionate about. You, you see my eyes light up whenever I start talking about languages, and, but also like learning and understanding other cultures. And yeah, you know, I mean, like the reason, one of the reasons I love learning a language is because I love learning cultures and just how it's just amazing. Like when you get into like how different societies work, I just, I love that. And so I, I, I'd love to turn this into a business that could, you know, I, I'm like a, like an indie hacked or bootstrap business. Um, now the, the issue that I'm finding is it's incredibly expensive to run. So, uh, for it to work perf properly, uh, or work well, I kind of need to use GPT four. Uh, and I also need the, the, the current best text to speech software. <laughs> yeah. It's costing me about $50 us a month to run it just for me. So it, I kind of mm. have to charge a hundred dollars US a month, and and that's because I need to cover the people. That, like a, it needs to make some money, and b, it needs to, um, yeah, it does need to cover the cost for the people who use it a lot. Like some people, they get fully into this and they'll be using it five, ten hours a day, and I'll go backwards on those. And so, so I have, I, I, I want to get this out there as quick as I can. Uh, and so subscription is kind of the easiest model. But one thing I, I specifically wanted to ask you about is I thought actually maybe another angle for this would be to try and get it as a resources for schools and specifically even TAFE. So Maddie, when she got her visa um, as a partnership visa, she got 500 hours of language tuition uh, provided, by, uh, by, provided by TAFE uh, to help her learn English. But for her, it was really hard to use uh, because she had to work. Uh, and so, and also, again, sitting down in a language class, it's not one-on-one 
intuition. And so I wondered if, and I, this is like, I'd love your input on any of this, but specifically, I wondered if I, if you thought it would be viable to actually try and go after like TAFE specifically and say, hey, we can build you this piece of software that you can provide to your students. And so in terms of cost-wise, it would be, even if it's expensive per student, it would still be cheaper than probably running the TAFE courses that nobody's using. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I have a number of thoughts, Ooh, my, but I've always got always got thoughts and and big caveat, you know, advice is free, and so you know, um, so I was interested by the fact that you ran away from pricing and and your your business model of just uh, public access so quickly, um, because of the variable cost of the underlying service. Mm. Because, and the reason why that was interesting to me was because what was going through my mind was, oh, well, you know, how much would I expect to pay a one-on-one language tutor? Yeah. And how would I expect to pay for that? I'd be paying by the hour. Yeah. I'd be paying probably 60 plus dollars an hour. Um, That's, Mm. and how many hours are you conversing with your AI tool? Yeah, a month. I'd be doing, I'd be doing 20 minutes a day. So that works out to hours and hours. So. So do- dozens of yeah. hours. So you're you're already at that 10x mark in terms of um, you know the, the the comparative cost. Um, so there there is there is a there there you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so if if you could price it in the right way, it may be viable. You don't have to make it a monthly thing. I think that. Um, there are a lot of monthly things and, and monthly. there are so many monthly things that it makes us feel like everything has to be a monthly thing. But it could be that you pay by the session or you buy a package and, yeah. uh, you know, the more you buy, the, the, the lower the costs become. And it could just be an all-you-can-eat situation where the more you buy, the, you know, you get into better and better pricing tiers, which, you know, that's the way that cloud resources are priced anyway. Yeah. So you, that wouldn't be controversial. Um, I think that you might find a market for that, uh, depending on the quality of the product and, and that kind yeah. of thing. But, um, but I think the other side to your question, which was like, is that something that education providers would pay for? Um, that's, a, that's a complex question um, because I know that AI is a hot topic in education for all the wrong reasons yeah. at the moment. And so hmm. depending on your particular audience, they may or may not be even receptive to the conversation to begin with. Right, okay. um, because what you're essentially doing is you are taking resources away from actual real humans who those TAFEs employ. Um, so ethical conundrum there yeah um, it, it, not not necessarily one that you need to consider yeah. but an ethical conundrum certainly for the TAFE right, I see yes. uh, or for the university or for or for whomever or for the the governing body that's giving them the grants or, or whatever um uh you know how much money are they how much are they going to have to cut like let's take a university for example how much am I going to have to cut into my research budget now uh, because I can't get tutors who will work on the research for next to nothing in their spare time by giving them paid tuition jobs. Um, so there, there are like unintended consequences, yes. knock on effects, blah, blah, blah. Um, so 
yeah, uh, that that would be my gut response to education. I think, yeah, of course, like, of course, that would um, be great for the average learner. Yeah. And also, I think great for Australian society because it breaks down that language barrier and gets people to integrate. Because that's one of the biggest problems I see in immigration is that if you can't learn the language you know, and people are afraid to learn the language and, and so then they stick in their circles of their exterior language group and then you get silos and then you end up yeah. with a real... And then you get in-group, in, in out-group yeah. and then you get cultural divide and you know all that kind of thing. Uh, I totally agree. I, that makes me think that it's a public product. Yeah. Though, yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. Because your, your objective is... Your objectives would be in some ways at odds with the education institutions right, you're saying yep um and uh efficiency isn't everything in in social institutions yep it, it's it's as much about the community and the society and the contributions and the the intangibles and the non-financials as it is yeah the opposite okay so um so you you see the the intangibles and the the benefits as being so, as social benefits from the perspective that each individual can uh, integrate is probably the wrong word uh, connect and communicate with their communities more effectively yep. and have a more successful time in Australia um, with language, um, uh, which isn't necessarily the objective of a language course at a university. Yeah. Man, that's a really interesting take. I've never heard that before. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. I think what James is saying, Kelvin, is that for the good of society and for the stability of people's jobs in language tutoring, you need to kill your dream now. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, uh, that is a really interesting reading of, of those things that I was saying. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I didn't take that. Yeah, that good. James, okay, so good. It's all just good. checking. I thought I'd just check. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about unintended uh, consequences. I, far out. <laughs> yeah, I do really appreciate that we kind of ambushed you with that. I can't remember if I no, I didn't even I didn't even know about any of this stuff. That's good. Yeah. So, and it's one of the things again. It's one of the as we talk to people, right? We can hear your story, but also get your unique perspective on what mm. we're doing. And so, free business yeah. advice, yeah, free, free consulting. Advice. That's why every podcast was created, right? <laughs> to to exactly. to get clients yeah, exactly. and to get free consulting. Yeah, yeah. I uh, say so thank you for your, <laughs> for your input. All right. Okay. Before we get into another topic, uh, let's let's do the round, <laughs> the round wrap table. up at some point. <laughs> James, it is it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, likewise, today. Guys. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and like a significant amount of time to sit down and talk with us and uh, give us advice and tell us about Caden as well. I think uh, like it's it's a fascinating story and yeah, well, we're just privileged that you you know you took the time to you know to come on the podcast with us. No, today. thanks for inviting me on and uh, really good to talk to you both and. I think that, um, yeah, this is a, a really great platform that you're developing. So good luck for it. Thank you. And so if Thanks. people want to find you uh, on the Anywheres, mm -hmm. how should they do so? Um, best to follow. We, we only have one major social media channel and that's on LinkedIn. So just search for, for Cadent Excellent. on LinkedIn um, or you can go to cadent.au on the world wide web i'd love the mm. fact that you have cadent.au no not many business have that yet i was very i, I was i was kind of uh i, I was compelled when um csiro.au came out i was like oh how did they get au and um uh it wasn't out 
uh, in the public yet. And I actually became a member of the AU domain authority just so that I could keep across the news of when the .au's were going to come out and how to get them. So I've got <laughs> gorsey.au, uh, I've got uh, my daughter's nice. name.au, uh, and I've got caden.au. But, um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it was, um, I'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll, we'll see if it's memorable enough. I think I think Caden.au. I think I like Caden as a name as well. Uh, Pat, all right, tell us where can people find you? You can find me at the usual places, which is x.com forward slash patsnacks for my Twitter and garbage thoughts and opinions. Or you can find me over on LinkedIn. You can get to all my profiles just by going to techhuddle.show and then it have everything in the links down the bottom of the episode. Yeah, we post uh, we post our releases on on X. X man, it feels weird saying X anyway on Twitter. Uh, for the you post your details to to your ex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm the same. I'm Kelvin Bullwinkle on Twitter, and uh, but techhuddle.show if you can't spell my last name. Cool, awesome. All right, hitting the stop button. Oh wait, before we do.